September 1982. This is the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. I've got a jam-packed episode for you here. I've got 11 magazines, including my favorite analog. First time I had an analog in, what, four episodes or so? The game review this time is of Deluxe Invaders, a game programmed by Joe Hellison and published by Rockland. Additionally, I'm going to move the feedback to the end of the episode, just because I record in order, and this will allow me just to do all my edits as I go, and then I only have to edit the last little bit at the end when I get all the feedback in. And I realized I could insert stuff at the beginning, which is what I've done in the past, but then all the time codes I've written down, you know, have to be shifted forward, and so, yeah, I think it's just easier if I just tack stuff on at the end as it gets there. So that's the new plan, and let's get into the magazines. This episode, we actually have 11 magazines to cover, and we won't have more than this at any point in the future. This is despite Analog and Antic still not being monthly. Analog doesn't go monthly until 1984, and Antic goes monthly here in a few episodes. Well, six months or so, it goes monthly in April of 83. So you'd think that at some point we'd actually get more than 11, but as it turns out, there's a bunch of magazines that disappear starting in 84, and that really affects our numbers here as we, you know, this is the, the far future of the podcast, 20 episodes down the road, which at the rate I'm going might be in 2028, although I intend not to string it out that long. But yeah, 11 issues to cover this episode. No, I'm still including Byte in that, but the Byte coverage actually is probably going to tail off. There is actually something to cover in Byte this episode, and it's a good one. But it's pretty much just going to be one article in Byte. Pretty shortly, I imagine my Byte coverage will kind of degenerate into just descriptions of the great Robert Tinney artwork on the cover. And if, if I don't see any Atari stuff in the table of contents, I will probably just ignore the whole issue. But for now, let's get started with the analog. This is issue number seven. $2.25 on the cover price. It's now called Analog Computing, the magazine for Atari computer owners, where it previously was Analog 400-800 magazine. This issue has 76 pages. On the cover is a cityscape, a really large metropolis, kind of in a foreshortened perspective. Right at the front, at at the foreground, is a big Atari logo, sort of redesigned into a, like a three tower skyscraper. It's in yellow and a big bright light is on the roof of the central, um, tower. Yeah, the perspective is really foreshortened. It's it's a lot of it spreads out quite wide, so you can see many, many, many city blocks in the distance. There's several bright lights of various colors in the far background. Each of the towers in the background seems to be a different solid color. You know, the Atari logo in yellow sort of dominates the the frame, and then there's a there's a blue tower sort of nearby in the corner, and then a green and yellow and red and, and some white towers in the background as it fades away. The inside front cover is an ad for Mosaic RAM systems. And it has something like the screen clarity test, saying that Mosaic RAM produces a clearer screen than other competition memory systems. I guess sort of touting the the lack of interference that it generates. There's an ad for Zork 2 on the following page. And before that, the next page before we get to the table of contents is an ad from Compute about talking about the Compute books. The first book of Atari, Inside Atari DOS, the second book of Atari. And a handy little order form you can cut out and mail in. And we have the table of contents. We'll go through the whole magazine, so I'm not going to read all of it, but the stuff that I'm most interested in, or would have been most interested in back then, was probably the, talking about the, there's a Percom double entity disk drive review, and there's program listings. Probably Dino Battle would have been intriguing. And then further down, I note there's a column, Benioff at Large, by Mark Benioff. The column appeared at least in issue six, and when I did that, when I read issue six last, or I don't know how many episodes ago that was, I don't think I was aware that Mark Benioff was the same guy who is the Salesforce.com CEO and, you know, mega quadzillionaire. I mentioned him in the last episode with his game Crypt of the Undead. And at that point, I had recognized he as of the Salesforce.com person that he had gotten to start with Atari computers. 
And this being 1982, the interweb says that Benioff was born in 1964, so he's like 17 or 18, uh, depending on when this article was written. And I wonder if he still lists this on his resume as published in analog computing. Anyway, we'll look, definitely look at the article when we get there. The editorial is written by Lee Pappas, and he talks about some of the computer fairs, like the West Coast Computer Fair being more a consumer-oriented thing, where the ironically named Consumer Electronics Show being more for executive and corporate types. At the CES, talked about seeing the uh, ERIC, the Electronic Retail Information Center, which is that automated demonstration system that Atari had that has the display of the you know the key the keyboard the monitor the printer. He also talks about a trip to Sunnyvale to meet with the Atari folks that uh, Tom Hudson and he went on and said perhaps the most fascinating part of the trip was meeting with Chris Crawford. He said Chris is now with the fairly new long range computer development program. Says this department's main concern is what the market and technology will be like in 10 and 15 years. And said in a few years we may be seeing personal computers with one megabyte RAM and a thousand by a thousand screen resolution. And of course superior human interfacing, which is right up Chris Crawford's alley. He says, last but not least, I thought I would mention our name change and the new look of the magazine. We changed the name to Analog Computing for the very simple reason, when, not if, Atari comes out with their new home computer systems, they obviously will have different model numbers than 400 and 800. Therefore, we change the name now to save us trouble later on, so Analog can be devoted to all Atari computer systems. And he also said they changed their format of the paper to slick paper and color throughout. So I didn't realize that previous ones, only having seen them on the Internet Archive, were not sort of the slick glossy paper that I was used to of, of analogs. I've got a few reader comment sections that I'm going to skip over because nothing super interesting. Then we come to the Benioff at Large column, and his byline is Mark Russell Benioff. He starts off, hello, and welcome to another exciting issue of Analog and another Benioff at Large. And basically, this is just like a set of capsule reviews of like new programs. Not even reviews, I suppose, but kind of like a, what, preview, I guess, of coming attractions? Talking about Zork 1 and Zork 2 from uh, Infocom, then Deadline is even better, he says. And Datasoft releasing Pacific Coast Highway, Canyon Climber, and Shooting Arcade. He says, all these are super. I don't have them yet, but I've seen several demonstrations. He says, if you like Defender or Phoenix, you'll probably like a program called Alien Swarm, which Defender and Phoenix, I don't really consider the same genre. He says this month he bought another online adventure called Ulysses and the Golden Fleece. It's a three-disc adventure similar to The Wizard and the Princess. He says, very good. If you like Wizard, you'll love Ulysses. And then finally, he says, Gabelli told him that they are going to be releasing an improved version of Andromeda and that their game Pathfinder would be available soon. He says their soon-to-be-released cartridge Embargo, don't know Embargo, is temporarily on hold and awaiting cartridge packaging. Till next issue, this is Mark Benioff signing off. And pause while I look up Embargo from Gabelli Software, and sure enough, it's a cartridge. Atari Mania says, Rarity of 9? I'd never heard of it before, I didn't, and I, you know, rarity to me means nothing because I'm not really a collector. It says it's an 8K ROM cartridge, and I looked it up. It's kind of an interesting take on, almost looks like Frogger, sort of, except you have a little spaceship and, you're, and you can also shoot stuff. You're trying to gather stuff from the ground and, like, pick things up and bring it up to the top of the screen to drop off at your mothership. Like, I guess the alien equivalent of the, like, alligators and stuff in Frogger, these, like, spaceships going left and right on the screen that you've got to get by. See, I didn't realize Gabelli was that into Atari stuff at all. Looking up on Atari Mania, it looks like they have seven, yeah, seven different uh, releases on the Atari, all in 1981 and 1982. All right, back to the magazine. We've got a review of KDOS by KByte Software. Review is by Jerry White. And so it describes KDOS as a compatible DOS 2.0 system, except command line based. I think command line DOS would have kind of scared me back then. Uh, the most I used, I used my DOS was the, the one that I used apart from regular Atari DOS. In the new product section, they list Deadline and Letter Perfect. Has it a cartridge now for Atari? 
The next article is Atari 2019 by Pactor J. Kelly, and it's talking about Blade Runner, and if you remember the original Blade Runner with all the like Atari logos plastered everywhere, it also mentions other companies that are part of everyday life today that still thrive in the future, like TDK, RCA, Pan Am Airlines, Coca-Cola, and of course Atari. Alright, so let's think about those. So, Pan Am for sure is gone. Coke is still here, obviously. Atari is a shell of its former self. I don't know about TDK and RCA, so pause. And yep, TDK still exists. I used to remember them all over the place with their media stuff, but since we don't really buy media much anymore, I wasn't really aware of them, but they're still active. RCA, however, is not so lucky. They were bought by General Electric in 1986, it appears. And according to Wikipedia, the various divisions were sold or liquidated. I guess any company named the Radio Corporation of America was probably not destined to live too long into the future. Next is a utility called Bun Crush, which is a basic utility program of some sort? The author is Tony Messina and says he's extending his basic utility or his utility number one from the previous issue. Looks like it's a variable lister with, so you can output to the screen or printers the ver- all the variables in your program. But there's a lot of the, the writing is very sort of like flowery and not very to the point. So it's hard for me to figure out what's really the point of this program. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. But, you know, in reading this, I would be like, yeah, confused and not only would be, but am. There's an article, Restore Your Mental Health by Mike Suero. Looks like it's talking about managing basic programs to use the only the, the smallest amount of memory that you can, saying that basic arrays take a lot of memory. So I think he's saying not to read entire like blocks of data statements all the time, like to use the restore statement. I'm not exactly remembering what the restore statement does. Maybe clears out data and then go back and just use the read command to only read the data statements that you're interested in. Yeah, my basic is rusty. I don't remember all my basic commands. Next, we come to a review of Raster Blaster. The review is by the Program Doctors, and I don't recall what that group of people is all about. But Raster Blaster is by Budgeco. It's a pinball game, and I've never played any of the pinball games, actually. I should change that and try one of these. The reviewers say that it's a mixed reception in the Atari land. Said as a pinball simulation, it's excellent, but as a simulation for the Atari, it could have been better. Clearly, they're lamenting it's just a straight port from the Apple, and it's not taking advantage of all the Atari features. Then we come to the type-in game, Dino Battle. This is by Art V. Sestaro III. This is a basic game with a listing that spreads over three pages, like five columns. Looks like maybe 300 lines of basic. It's got a very brief description. It says, a fierce battle between two players. Your goal is to bit your opponent's dinosaur on the back of the neck. There's a sick in there. By moving your joystick and pressing the fire button, you can move your dinosaur and open and close its mouth. It seems like it's a two-player simultaneous game, but there's no screenshot. In the explanation of the code, it does it lists the line numbers and sort of what each group of lines does, and then it lists variables, and so it's got variable positions for dinosaur 1 and dinosaur 2. So presumably it's two dinosaurs at the same time, but yeah, no screenshot. There's an article, Faster Character Dumps by Joseph T. Trim. It's uh, some utilities to move the character set around in RAM. So it, uh, it shows how to do it in BASIC, and then there's a little machine language program that speeds it up. The next article is Sound Lab by David Hallowell. And this is a small little BASIC program to mess with some of the sound registers. So it looks like you can control all four registers independently, setting the volume, the tone, and the frequency. And it's got some delay loops and stuff you can mess with to kind of try to find sound effects. And sound is definitely something I need to play with more on the Atari. I don't know much about the sound and how to create your own sound effects. There's an article, Budget Worksheet by Ali Khan. It's like a, a simple, basic program for to do a weekly budget. It's two columns of basic, probably 50 lines of code. 
The next article is Multiprocessing on your Atari by Mark Chasson, and it leads off saying, No, this article will not enable you to set up a time-sharing service on your Atari home computer, but it will try to demonstrate how to implement a form of multiprocessing, which has been used in a number of recently released programs for the Atari. Talking about the vertical blank. So it gives kind of an overview of how to set up a vertical blank and talks about using the deferred routine, so not replacing the system's vertical blank, so letting the system keep doing all its like background duties. In the little example he provides, it, it plays some music in the background. Oh, here's an ad for back issues of Analog 400-800 magazine. Looks like I missed out on issue number one. It's sold out. So two, three, and four are still available. And as I mentioned, this is the first. Issue seven is the first one I have, so I still need issues one through six. But those are pretty pricey as I check on eBay. And here's another Program Doctors column. This is the Program Doctors at the CES. It's a three-page article. No pictures. It's all text, so it's pretty dense. Talking about all the stuff they've seen. It's like K-Byte Software has a bunch of stuff. K-Star Patrol, Crazy Critters, K-Razy Antics. K-Date Organizer, utility package available soon. says the calendar of the future. A seven-year personal secretary, it claims, will hold all important dates for up to four people. Atari had a bunch of stuff. Speed Reading, Music Tutor, Juggles House. Juggles Rainbow are some educational programs they had. The modems, they had the Direct Connect modem, the 835, which I guess Direct Connect can plug plug into the wall, and then the 830 is the acoustic modem where you plug the old-fashioned handset in there. And then the Telelink 1 is the old software in it. I guess they started demoing the Telelink 2 cartridge. Finally, said the best news from Atari was the price decreases, lowering prices on some existing stuff by 22 to 33%. So the 400 was dropped in price not once but twice during the show to a new suggested retail of 299.95. Said so Thorn EMI had darts and pool and a new release called Submarine Commander, as well as Jumbo Jet Pilot, Soccer, Kickback, and a bunch of utility stuff on cassette. An education publisher called Milliken Publishing had some products called EduFun and MathFun, all these with exclamation points at the end. And upcoming would be Word Fun, Spelling Fun, Health Fun. Synapse Software had Slime, Seamus, and Nautilus. Nautilus, I always thought, was a very fun game. I need to review that sometime. It's a two-player simultaneous game. They talked about some of their utilities, File Manager 800, Disk Manager, and Syn Assembler. So Arcade Plus, follow-up to their successful Ghost Hunter, were three new games, Night Rally, Arcade Baseball, and Arcade Pro Football. A company called Computer Magic was showing their game Pogoman. Then Epix had Crypt of the Undead, which we've seen ad- ads for by old Mark Benioff himself. And some other, looks like it, mostly adventure games, The Nightmare, King Arthur's Heir, and Escape from Vulcan's Isle. It also looks like they announced a game, Alien Garden, which I don't know of. Artworks had Poker Tourney, Rockland had Deluxe Invaders, Wizard of War, and Gorf, and said Rockland also had some uh, business application programs. Next in the magazine, we move on to Atari Basic Meets Complex Data Structures by Raymond T. Tillman, which is a, sorry, it's a linked list implementation in Atari Basic. So it explains a little bit about what linked lists are and uh, sort of a convoluted way to manage them in Atari Basic. Here's the VCS update by Lee Pappas. It's got a bunch of screenshots of stuff, even one of Star Raiders. And I've never played Star Raiders on the VCS. Uh, Ferg reviewed it on episode 87 of his 2600 Game by Game podcast. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Then we come to the review of the Percom Double Density Disk Drive. The appearance of the drive looks a lot like the Apple II drive. There's a metal case around the base plate of a five and a quarter drive, and that's it. Although it looks like these are designed to be mounted on their side, so the disc is inserted vertically. 
it notes that the double density discs will hold about 180k, so twice of the 90k of the regular single density discs. It says Percom doesn't supply a DOS, but they supply some utility that will create a double density version of DOS 2.0s. It says the uh, Atari's DOS 2.0s already has the code to handle double density, but that there's no way to like format a double density disc from normal DOS 2.0s. So you, if you follow the procedure they list, it will, apparently it will get you a DOS in double density that you can then use, but there's no utility to, or through DOS anyway, to copy from a single density to a double density on the same drive. So there's an additional utility they supply for that. The list price on these is $799, which is quite pricey, much more than the regular Atari disc. But it says there's a controller built in so you can add sort of additional drives without having to add the high expense of the controller software. So the additional drives are less than the regular price of a a normal drive. So I guess if you're going for a four-disc system, you're in good shape to go with Percom. Next is the non-tutorial part six by Charles Bachand. This is a little article on uh, graphics and graphics dumping, so how to get printer output, like graphic output to a printer. So it's got a program for Epson and CITO, and there's a little demonstration program that prints this like three-dimensional hat-looking shape. Next article is Triple Threat Dice by Michael A. Ivins. It says, do you like to gamble but can't afford trips to Las Vegas or Atlantic City? If so, then this program is for you. It says, by placing your bets carefully, you'll be fairly sure of a high return, while impulse betting on the high odds may make you a big winner or might make you go broke. It says the game modeled after gambling machines in Vegas using three dice, and that unlike craps, you're betting solely on the outcome of a single roll of the dice. Unlike creative computing of last episode, there's no like big warning that says, like, you know, gambling is bad. I forget where I saw this uh, little quote, gambling is just a tax for people who are bad at math. Although I guess more correctly it'd be for people who are bad at probability. The house always wins in the end. But anyway, it's a spread over three page listing spread over three pages and five columns. It's probably 250 lines of basic. Here's a software review of the Stereo Graphics Package from APX. The reviews by Brian Moriarty. He says, Clyde Spencer's Stereo 3D Graphics, APX part number 20087, is the first Atari graphics package designed to generate true stereoscopic images. It says, using in conjunction with a regular still camera, this package lets you create high-resolution wireframe stereograms that can be viewed with any standard stereoscope. Or it's also capable of producing side-by-side stereo image pairs on your TV set that can, with practice, be viewed directly in 3D. And these aren't like red-green 3D images. So what it means is, or he explains it anyway, is to converge the images by focusing sort of through the the monitor. He said, this cross-eyed viewing takes practice and not everyone will be able to master it. Which reminds me of the sort of the random dot stereograms that were kind of a big thing back in the, I guess it's probably later than that, probably in the 90s, where you could kind of converge. You have these, you know, you have a bunch of look, what looked like random dots, and then you could, with practice, sort of visualize this, this 3D image coming out of the page. I, I can only do it backwards. I could like cross my eyes and I could see the reverse image. And the following article is Stereographics Tutorial, also by Brian Moriarty. And here, this is a basic program to generate sort of the, the 3D graphics that you see with the, like the red-green glasses. It includes a little basic program with some data statements that create a shape, and then you can run it and use your glasses. That It includes a helpful little template, but no red or green film. And it helpfully suggests you can find this kind of stuff at art stores or photographic or theatrical supply stores. There's a Atari Basic crossword puzzle by Peggy Noble, which uses basic keywords to do all the clues in the basic or in the uh, crossword. And here we are at the end of the magazine. The inside back cover is an ad for K-Razy Shootout from K-Byte, and the back cover is an ad for Preppy by Ross Wetmore um, from Adventure International. Next in the cavalcade of magazines is Compute. This is the September 1982 issue, issue number 24, volume 4, number 9. Two bucks fifty on the cover price, one pound eighty-five in the UK, 
226 pages in this issue, although the PDF has 230 because of a couple comment cards and stuff in there. It's the usual layout of the title, you know, big block letters compute on the top of the journal for progressive computing TM. Underneath that is the sounds of Tron, so continuing with the recent theme of Tron being everywhere in all these magazines. It says, using Apple and Atari in the production of a computer fantasy as the subtitle. So that should be an interesting article. It shows a picture of what looks like the character Yori talking to a large turtle with an Apple logo on the side. And the first thing on the on the left side of the um, cover page is a turtle pilot compiler in BASIC for personal computers, part one, the Apple version. So presumably there'll be more versions in the future. Other things highlighted on the cover are an automatic disk boot for Commodore computers, joystick tutorial for the VIC-20, and Atari Rainbow 3 GTIA graphics articles, graphic display for the Radio Shock color computer, and rounding out the cover page, there's a nice little Fuji symbol descending and trailing what looks like a rainbow arc. And in the, in the corner, then it says, Reviews, Space Games for Vic and Atari, a pet CBM database manager, and more. And with that, we're off. In the first couple of pages, there's a two-page spread for Brodobun software, and it shows a lot of games. All it says for the Apple and Atari on diskette. There's Dueling Digits, David's Midnight Magic, Track Attack, Labyrinth, Choplifter, Serpentine, Starblazer, Sea Fox, Deadly Secrets, Apple Panic, and Stellar Shuttle. It's got sort of box art for the first seven of those, and then Sea Fox through Stellar Shuttle has screenshots. Looks like of the Apple versions, because they're sort of the Apple-style artifacting graphics. And the sort of right-hand side of that two-page spread, there's a like an additional little section that says, The Arcade Machine. Put us out of business. The Arcade Machine lets you design and produce your own computer games without any programming knowledge. Send us your best game and enter the Broderbun Arcane Machine Contest. We'll be giving away thousands of dollars worth of hardware and software and prizes. And unfortunately, it looks like available on Apple Disk, so not for the Atari. Should have read all the way through before quoting that. The fine print notes, all Broderbun games are fully guaranteed. If they ever fail to boot, return the original disc to Broderbun for a free replacement. If you have physically damaged the disc, please include $5 for replacement. Come at the table of contents. There are several things that are listed as Atari specific. One is Moonbase IO and Space Ace for Atari in the reviews section. There's the Inside Atari column, of course. There's the and there's the three GTIA articles mentioned on the cover, in addition to an article about editing basic programs with the Atari Assembler Editor cartridge. Interesting. And the Atari message board, which is not called out any further than that, so we'll see what that's all about. We'll cover a selection of other stuff as we go through. In the editor's notes, it has a very personal aside. It lists 100,000, here we come. It says the October press run is going to be larger than 100,000 copies for the first time in its history, and said they forecast breaking 100,000 paid subscribers in November. And it seems to indicate this is paid subscribers and not... Although it says press run, so I don't know, it's it's confusing. Paid circulation versus, you know, how many they distribute to, like, you know, newsstands. But yeah, the 100,000 paid in November seems to indicate paid circulation. But anyway, congratulations, Compute, for exceeding 100,000. That's awesome. Continuing on, it says, the As you read this, the Commodore 64 should be appearing at your local stores. We know they exist. Our features editor, Tom Halfhill, spent an entire day working with one at Commodore's Valley Forge, Pennsylvania headquarters. And then below it says, the competition continues. Atari has dropped the base price on the $400 to $299 and entered an agreement with Sears. And it said Kmart apparently had been carrying the VIC-20, but agreed to double the number of stores, so they have 1,100 Kmart locations selling VIC-20s. It says Kmart also sells the TI-994A, and you can get the VIC-20 and Montgomery Wards. It said Radio Shack and Tandy decided to drop its traditional approach to the consumer market and expand their customer base for the color computer. It says they'll be selling a version of it with a different color case through department stores. Hmm, that's interesting. 
It says, our sources indicate that between the two of them, Atari and Commodore are currently shipping over 60,000 VIC-20s and Atari 400s a month. By the time you factor in the Atari 800, the Commodore 64, TI, Sinclair, and RadioShock color computer, you can conservatively estimate 200,000 consumer computers a month by October. And concludes, imagine there were some who thought we'd go the way of the CB radio. The facing page is an ad for, uh, from Atari itself. It says, more than ever, Atari home computers are speaking your language, and it lists all the languages that Atari itself supports. And Atari Basic isn't even listed first. It says Atari Microsoft Basic first. It says, now we offer the industry standard most powerful Microsoft Basic yet. But they don't mention that you need a disk drive, and yeah. But then they list the uh, Atari Macro Assembler, Figforth, Atari Basic, the Atari Assembler Editor, Pilot, and Atari Pascal. Although they also don't mention that Atari Pascal is through APX. The column Computers and Society by David Thornburg mentions the Consumer Electronics Show. So this is the Chicago show. The January show is in Las Vegas. This is still a time when they have two CES shows a year. I mentioned the Commodore Max, which is a sort of super low RAM Commodore 64, I think. I think the Retro Computing Roundtable in a recent episode talked about this and how it eventually was only released in Japan, I think. It talks about seeing the new Sinclair computer, the ZX Spectrum which is a color machine that has 16K and 48K versions. And in conclusion in this article, talks about the NEC PC6000 as being a very like high-end machine that wouldn't displace the lower sort of consumer-targeted um, machines and said this might dispel the myth of the Japanese invasion. This sort of being the time of you know Japan's economy really being on the ascendancy and specifically with like cars and stuff, a lot of these, a lot of the Japanese cars were much higher quality than American cars, and the American car companies getting their clocks cleaned. So I think there was a sort of fear that that would happen to a lot of industries. And coupled with the article we saw in one of the soft lines that we talked about last episode, where the the Bill Budge article, if you remember that, was talking about how he sort of expected the Japanese computer companies to take over the market here in the in the U.S., and it ended up being that Nintendo really took it over in the the console market. Before turning the page, we see an ad for Rear Guard, which is the not-so-great game we talked about last episode. And we come to the article, The Sounds of Tron, by Tom Halfhill. The lead-up says, Atari and Apple products produce sounds of greater quality than some synthesizers, said one of the creators of the Tron soundtrack. He used these computers to create some of the movie's most memorable sound effects. So the article starts off talking about the disc battle scene and said some of those sound effects were produced by the Apple and the Atari. And it said not only that were off-the-shelf Ataris and Apples used, but that the Atari 800 running, uh, it said, commonly available database manager program, it doesn't specify which, was used to categorize and store the all the sound effects. So this is an interview with Frank Serafine and said there were just thousands and thousands of sound effects that need to be created and used. So he goes over this process of what he called electronic sound assembly for using these digitized sound effects rather than the cutting and splicing of old tape as how he described it would have worked previously. He said he would digitize sound effects into the system called the Fairlight CMI, which is a computer musical instrument, apparently. And he would overlay a bunch of sound effects on top of each other. And as an example, said that when a light cycle makes, you know, it's 90 degree turns, that was a combination of video game tones generated by the Atari and the recording of a buzzsaw. Said the tank sounds are a bunch of sounds generated on the Atari, all layered over together. Said he first tried recording a real tank, but it was disappointed by the clanking rattle. He said he wanted something that sounded more turbine-like, more computer-controlled. Said the Atari generated a lot of sounds for the grid bugs and the shock prods that the MCP guards would use. Then he talked about the Apple II, and it had plug-in sound cards, so it wasn't using, like, the Apple II speaker to generate stuff. 
he said Disney sent him up to Silicon Valley and they talked to Apple and Atari and Atari lent him something up called the Atari Sound Development Disc, which I never heard before. It said that a well-guarded, powerful utility package rarely entrusted to anyone outside Atari itself. And I got help from Ed Rotberg. And then, oh, here we go. Yeah, I used it. Uh, File Manager 800, the program by Synapse. So the database itself wasn't, or the database itself was stored on the Atari, but the, the stuff, the sound effects weren't. So it recorded like the locations on the, the sort of the master tapes, I guess. And it said use the Atari to look up where the location would be. And included at the end of the article is a little 20-line basic program that I was hoping would be some of the sounds that they actually used for Tron, but it turns out it's just a demo of some stuff. There's a heartbeat sound, a locomotive sound, and thunder and rain. Oh, another ad for Crypt of the Undead by Mark Benioff. There's a little article on how computers think by Richard Mansfield, kind of a, a sort of gentle introduction to logic. There's a little one-page program, the Peripheral Vision Exerciser. It says, this program for Atari and Microsoft Basics will aid in improving and maintaining speed reading skills. And I certainly remember speed reading being kind of a fad back in the 80s. So the article is by Ron Kushner of Richboro, Pennsylvania, and talks about how, you know, all seen the stories about people who can read a novel in an hour, and their eyes scan the pages faster than most of us can read a sentence. So it talks about speed reading as it's an actual technique, you know, visualizing whole words rather than letters. And I mean, that's how I read. I see words. I don't really see, you know, T-H-E is the, and I have to spell it out in my head. So I, I don't know. I found an article on the Straight Dope website about speed reading, and I will link to it in the show notes. It's, it's pretty amusing. One of the tests they did is they interleaved two stories. Like one line was from one story, and the second line, the next line, was another story, and they asked speed readers to read it. And they claimed they understood the whole text, and they said, oh, well, did you notice it was two stories mixed up? And they oh, no, I didn't really notice that. And some other articles kind of indicate that speed reading is, you know, might be useful for skimming something, but to, for actual details, it's not worth anything. Well, that's why it's fun reading these magazines, because you never know where some of these articles will take you and you know, what rabbit holes you might jump down. And we're skipping over a bunch of stuff that's for the pet and the TI and stuff. There's a monthly column, Friends of the Turtle, in case you're interested in the logo. It kind of, this one kind of compares Atari Pilot, TI logo, and Apple logo. There's an article, Student Mark Adjustment, by R.D. Wink of Peterborough, Ontario. It's a little program to kind of like calculate a curve on uh, tests if you happen to be a teacher and grading lots of stuff. So they're really, it's like 10 lines of basic, and basically it, you enter in the, looks like the data, and then how much you want to shift the median, and it will like mark down all the scores, like reduce or increase the scores to compensate. There's the column, The World Inside the Computer, by Fred Dignazio. This is subtitled, The Talking Head. It's a little basic program that draws a sort of a face on the screen and it has some like animation to it and says it's a this program's just the beginning. Next month we'll give the head the ability to carry on a conversation with your child and play games. It has listings for the Atari and then the pet and then sort of suggested changes for the Apple II. Next is the article Turtle Pilot by Alan W. Poole of Loomis, California. It says for Atari and Apple, the first of a three-part series on Pilot, and this is an Apple version of Pilot, the whole Pilot language, apparently. And next month will be an Atari Basic version of the Pilot language. And it's a pretty big listing. It covers most of six pages, so almost 12 columns of basic listing. And we'll skip a few more things till we get to the reviews. Moonbase, IO, and Space Ace for Atari by Tom Halfhill. That, the review is by Tom Halfhill. So I mentioned Moonbase IO in the last episode, that it was kind of this scrolling game where the enemies like didn't really move, just you were kind of moving around on a background. And so obviously there's more to it than my little cursory glance. And I guess there's three levels. And the interesting thing is it uses its, um, I think I mentioned it briefly, but it uses the cassette that comes with it to synchronize some of the sound effects. It says you get a mission briefing, and then as you go through the game at various points, you get additional messages. 
So if you if you make it past all the levels, you get a congratulatory speech from the president of the Earth Federation. So clearly there's more to it than what I saw. It says the machine language program is fast and incorporates player missile graphics, redefined characters, fine scrolling both vertically and horizontally, and well-executed sound effects from Atari's four voices. And I didn't really see any of that when I looked at it. He says it's a challenging arcade-style space game. And when I looked at it briefly, I found it totally boring. So we had some different experiences. And he also talks about Space Ace not being the same Space Ace as seen in arcades. This is a says fast action arcade style space warfare game for one player. So there's no screenshots for any of these. It's hard to tell what's going on. All it says there's a vertical scrolling play field and you have to shoot your way through space rocks and stuff. It says fans of arcade style games should find Space Ace both well executed and challenging. Well, okay then. Next, we come to the article on the sprite graphics and sound synthesis on the Commodore 64 by Tom Halfill again. He's a busy person. This is the second part of Compute's overview of the Commodore 64 and goes into, unsurprisingly, details of the sprite graphics and sound synthesis capabilities of the machine. In the intro, he says, Sometimes these shiny new shoes you buy wind up feeling like concrete blocks after a few hours wear. My first few hours with the prototype Commodore 64, however, led me to believe it will be a comfortable computer. He says the manual is good, the keyboard's friendly, full-screen editing is fun, and says someone with no previous experience on Commodores or computing in, in general will feel quickly feel at home on the 64. So he says Commodore lists it at $595, and Commodore expects production of 15,000 to 20,000 units a month by the end of the year. Says it comes in the same case as the VIC-20 and the same keyboard, but unlike the VIC-20, it has 64K. It says 52K is available for pure machine language programming, but only about 38K in basic. I think it's probably a famous number in Commodore circles, 38,911. That's the bytes of RAM that show up when you boot up basic. He goes on to describe the screen when you boot it up. It's a light blue and darker blue border, and the characters appear as dark blue as well, which I always found kind of hard to read. But he says it's you can change all the colors. Uh, apparently, it seems like you can change the border and background, and uh, or the border and the text color independently. For some reason, I always thought the border color and the text color always had to be the same, like there was like one color register for both, but apparently that's not the case. He describes pressing control one to change the character color, and uh, he says there's ways to change the background and the border color as well, but doesn't really describe how to do that. I don't know if it's another control combination or if it's a poke. Then we get into the graphics. It's a 320 by 200 high resolution mode, 16 colors, and the sprites, or as he says, they're called mobs, movable object blocks, which I hadn't heard before. And then in in parentheses, he said, in Atari parlance, it's player missile graphics. He says the the sprites have a priority, so they can go either in front of or behind other sprites. They have collision detection and are 24 pixels wide by 21 pixels tall. The sprites can have three colors and a transparent sort of fourth quote unquote color. And it said they can be doubled or quadrupled in either dimension simply with a poke statement. Additionally, they can be positioned with poke statements both in the X and the Y direction, unlike the Atari, which only has the X, and then you've got to move stuff up and down for uh, Y. So there's a little basic demo program that shows some of the features that just, it's a little thing. It says a hot air balloon that drifts diagonally down the screen. It says it's unnecessary to protect areas of memory to display sprites, unlike with other computers, i.e. the Atari. It says with a quick poke, it's possible to instantly redraw sprites with alternate shapes previously stored in memory. So really, the sprites are quite a step up from the Atari sprites. Not only are the C64 sprites individually positionable and have multiple colors, there can be eight up to eight sprites per scan line, with on the Atari we can only have five. 
So it's too bad, like, for the 5200, they didn't release, release like, a GTIA 2 that really went up in the sprite capability. You know, in the three years from when the, the 8-bits came out to when the C64 came out, that's a lot of time in computer technology. And as much as I like the Atari systems, you know, some improvement would have been probably necessary to really remain competitive over the long term. And it's, it's not surprising that the C64 went and ran so far ahead of everything for the next few years. You know, the Ataris, the Apple II, even the VIC-20, they did a lot of heavy lifting. And Commodore having redesigned an, an, or designed a new computer at this time benefited from a lot of stuff. Stand on the shoulders of giants as they were. And that's before we even get into the sound. The SID chip is probably the best remembered sound chip of the 8-bit era. It has three channels, and each of the three channels has 16-bit resolution. The Atari could combine two of their channels into a 16-bit, so we would have, like, two 16-bit channels. But in addition, over the Pokey, they have full envelope control and various waveforms they can select, as well as, like, attack and sustain, decay, you know, some other effects that we don't have or we have to control via uh, software. I'm still partial to the Pokey sounds, but I appreciate the technological leap that is the SID. And the remainder of the article goes over some of the hardware stuff that most of the hardware, it seems, from the VIC can be taken to the Commodore 64, except for the disk drive for whatever reason. It needed a ROM chip change, and so that was what the 1541 drive was. It replaced the 1540 that was VIC compatible. He also mentions there's a pet emulator, apparently targeting schools that had old pet computers that they wanted to replace with 64s. And it says Commodore promises a plug-in CPM cartridge. In conclusion, he says uh, the C64 should have some solid hardware and software support, said he's expecting some interesting games that they've been demoed, and he ends with a quote from a Commodore official unnamed who said, I think it's safe to say that Commodore has learned from everyone's past mistakes and is in a position to capitalize on the lessons. And that's probably true, not just mistakes, but as I mentioned earlier, just the fact that designing a computer three years after the Atari 8-bit, there's a lot of stuff that changed in three years. So there we go, we have met the enemy. In the Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson, he is talking about BASIC and the speed of BASIC, or more correctly, the lack thereof. So there's some speed tests in five different BASIC. He said he tested AppleSoft, Atari BASIC, Atari Microsoft BASIC, BASIC A+, and Chromemco's 32K Structured BASIC. Only three of those are available on the Atari. I guess he wanted some comparison. So he runs a, has a little, like, five-line BASIC program and changes one of the lines and loops it a bunch of times. And then follows that with a table where he lists like six different tests. And then for each, uh, for each different basic, he lists the time. It's just some simple floating point addition, kind of combining variables and constants in different ways. Chromemco basic is by far the fastest and its times don't vary at all, regardless of the way he adds the variables together. Microsoft basic is all over the place. Sometimes it's 20 times slower than Chromemco and sometimes it's almost on par. Atari basic doesn't seem to vary a whole lot. Basic A plus is probably 10% faster. And AppleSoft Basic is two or three times slower than Atari Basic in most cases, although in one case it does beat it by about five percent. He says it's surprising that Basic A plus and Atari Basic like do as well as they they have shown. Sounds like he was not expecting that. And another big surprise was Microsoft Basic and how poorly it did. He said partly because he was using double precision, which is a thing in Microsoft Basic, and I don't think is a thing in Atari Basic. But he was using that for a loop counter. And then reading a little further on, he then says, well, what happens when you add additional functions like sine and cosine or like more complicated than things than just addition? When he adds these more complicated functions in there and does a test, although he doesn't have a table, he said that Microsoft Basic is definitely much faster. It's four to five times faster than Atari Basic. The way to get Atari Basic faster, he said, is to use the fast chip. Now, this is something from Newell Industries. It replaces the, uh, the floating point ROM on the uh, personality board of the 400 or 800. And with the fast chip, the Atari Basic floating point times then approach Microsoft Basic. They're still slower, but they're sort of 20, 30, 40% slower instead of like six times slower. 
And he said basic A plus wasn't all that much faster than Atari basic when you're talking about these more complicated functions like sine, cosine, exponentiation, that kind of stuff. And then finally in the article, he talks about a little basic game he'd been developing uh, partly in last month and continues here. And so he, it ends up with about a 50-line basic program, kind of like a sort of a Pong program. And interestingly, he said he was not using player missile graphics because he didn't want to get into all that, that stuff right now. So he's using just regular plot statements and said there were plenty of other articles in Compute in previous issues that talked about player missile graphics. All right, so we'll skip a bunch of other systems here, and then we come to part three of Atari Video Graphics and the new GTIA by Craig Chamberlain of Birmingham, Michigan. It says in this, the conclusion of the three-part series, several demonstration programs teach the concepts of the new GTIA graphics chip. It says it costs nothing if your machine is still under warranty, and if you have an older Atari, it's about $60. He says if you just bought your computer, it's in there. So he includes a bunch of basic programs and one machine language program that is a a display list interrupt. The display list interrupt is necessary because modes 9, 10, and 11 don't normally allow for a little screen window like you have on mode 8. Like if you just say graphics 8, you get, you know, the four lines of text on the bottom and then the rest of it's the high-res mode. But he said you can fake that. So he gives a couple of poke statements, and then this display list interrupt is needed in order to tell the GTIA to stop displaying the uh, 4-bit per pixel mode and go back into the 1-bit per pixel mode so that you, you can read the text on the bottom of the screen. He then gives an overview of some of the plotting and drawing commands that are also usable on graphics 9, 10, and 11, and his demo programs, seven basic demo programs, like one showing all 16 shades of, of color, one drawing random lines, And there's a kaleidoscope program and a little doodle program. And finally, a little demo program that shows all 256 colors on the screen at one time. And that generates an encoded string from values in a data statement, but it doesn't actually list the source code for that, so I'm not sure what machine language commands it's actually using. The next article continues on the same theme. It's a bunch of basic demo programs for the GTI graphics modes. It's called Atari GTIA, an illustrated overview, and this is by Helen and Louis Marcoya of Shelton CN. And I just went down a bit of a rabbit hole there. I was like, did I miss a state? Like, okay, no, it must be a province, but there's no Canadian provinces to start with C. Closest I found was an obsolete postal code for the Nor- Northern Mariana Islands, which is CM, but this is CN. So I think they must mean Connecticut, and they just got a little confused. So we'll call it Shelton, Connecticut. There does, in fact, exist a city of Shelton, Connecticut, so it is possible. So two episodes in a row where we get into some obscure, like, place location references. Anyway, back to the article. It covers a lot of the same stuff as the other GTIA articles, talking about modes 9, 10, and 11. They do list a bunch of demo programs and sort of show you what all the colors are in in several of the programs by including rem statements showing what the color values are for each color. And at the end, they include a little animated program. It says, a simple molecular structure floating above a landscape. The monthly column on machine language is next. This is by Jim Butterfield. And this one's all about interrupts, the normal interrupt request and the non-maskable interrupt. The interrupt request on the Atari is something like the pokey timer, and he calls it the less powerful of the two because it can be blocked. The non-maskable interrupts are stuff like a displayless interrupt, which is something that has to be processed no matter what happens. He doesn't include any example code, this is just kind of an overview of the interrupt process itself. After skipping over a bunch of Commodore stuff, there's another GTI thing. It's called the GTI Demonstration by Jerry White of Levittown, New York. It's almost 100 lines of basic, and in the text he even says that you might be reluctant to type this in, but he said it's kind of laid out in three modules that are mostly independent. But yet, he doesn't give any idea of what it actually does, apart from saying that the one of the modules does have a machine language animation section. 
So I don't know, I did not type this in, as you might be surprised to learn. Skipping over some other non-Atari stuff, we come to the Atari message board by Dennis J. Harkins of Hatfield, Pennsylvania. It says it allows you to put up to 20 pages of messages on a Graphics 2 screen and display them repeatedly for as long as you like. Which reminds me of a software system that was written by somebody who was interviewed on the Antic podcast feed. And I did a search and I can't find it. I mean, there's so many interviews. I heard on the most recent Antic that they just had their 400th interview, which is an amazing milestone. The result of that is it's kind of hard to search the back catalog. There's so many people. But I remember at one point there was a guy who had a whole system of like a, a cartridge-based system where you'd plug your Atari in and it would run the sort of the schedule of the day for hotels. So it seems like a similar idea here. It is about 100 lines worth of basic. There's an interesting article next that's Editing Basic Programs with the Atari Assembler Editor Cartridge by Dennis Allen of San Jose, California. And it talks about how to use the editor of the Assembler Editor, which is a, has a better editor, including like mass deletion of lines, renumbering, and searching. And shows how, do you, how you use that to create a basic program. And we're reaching the end of the magazine here in the new product section. There's a few things for the Atari. One is the Fullview 80 display card, which perhaps unsurprisingly is an 80-column card for the Atari. It says it remains compatible with a normal 40-column graphics mode, and it has some soft switch. So presumably that's the soft switch in the Apple II sense. It's like a memory location you poke with something and it changes. And from the same company as a 32K Memory Plus board that I guess is targeted for the Atari 400. Another thing mentioned in this section is the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test package for the Atari. This is not from the Scholastic Aptitude Test people. It's from some company called Program Design, and it's all about preparing for the SATs. And there's the announcement of a couple games. One is the Cosmic Balance for st- from Strategic Simulations. And another is Alien Garden from Epix on a ROM cartridge. And the last little item in here is a joystick stand called a joystick stick stand. It's from K-Byte. And it looks, it doesn't mention it in this little blurb. It's like a two paragraph little thing. It looks like it fits the regular CX-40. It's like a stand that you like provides a more solid base so you can do one hand operation, it says. And it includes a little a ball that you can stick on the end of the, the joystick. But again, it doesn't say if it's for the CX-40, although the graphic image is really small. You kind of think, it kind of seems like it might be. And there we go, back cover. Guess who's on there? You'll never guess whose image is on the corner. Wonder when they'll start advertising the Commodore 64 instead of the VIC-20. Alrighty, on to the creative computing. This is September 1982, issue, volume 8, number 9. Two bucks, 95 on the cover price. It's 240 pages. The cover is a yellow background and a black font in its normal creative computing style. The subtitle is The Number One Magazine of Computer Applications and Software. The little sash on the upper right side says Database and File Management Systems. And let me tell you, I'm excited. It lists a whole bunch of systems there. Datafax, Visidex, Cardbox, DBMaster, Visifile, PFS, PIM3, File Manager 800, ooh, an Atari one, Versafile, and BPI General Ledger. It lists the systems for which they have columns. It says IBM, Atari, TRS-80, and PET. It has interview with Steve Wozniak. And then the picture, sort of the bottom half of the page is a picture, a top view of a table with close-ups of a bunch of hands holding joysticks or paddles and stuff. And I assume it's probably people from the magazine because it says, uh, Game Controllers Part 2, and in parentheses it says, Whose hands are these? So I don't know if there's a quiz inside, but I don't know how you would identify these people as a magazine you know, staff holding all these things. And I read through the magazine. This is a, one of the ones I have a physical copy of. And I read through it as kind of a you know, preliminary thing, and I did not see where they had like a quiz, you know, saying they would send you some sort of prize if you could figure out which hand belonged to which staff member. 
In the table of contents, it lists Apple game controllers. On the cover, there's definitely at least the CX40, but it does also talk about game port extenders, so maybe they have the digital like interface board that the Apples can use. And having just said I read it, I read it a while ago, so I don't remember all the details of the article, so we will look at it when we get there. It lists the review of the File Manager 800, amongst all the other sort of database and programs and stuff in the table of contents. It also has Monkey Wrench. It says prehensile programming for the Atari 800. And there's an article, Atari Games, calling out Dog Days and Caverns of Mars. Other interesting things here in the table of contents is there's the Woz and Us, the interview with Steve Wozniak, the Atari disk file tutorial, whatever that turns out to be, getting along without tab, an Atari translation, because the Atari doesn't have the tab command in Atari Basic, and then there's the Outpost Atari section in the departments. On the facing page of the table of contents is an ad from Big 5 Software for a defense command game. And it looks like it's before Big 5 got into Atari stuff because it says it was available for the just TRS-80. But of course, Big 5 with Bill Hogue is responsible for, well, probably one of the all-time great games on the system, Minor 2049er. The article about the game controllers is specifically Apple. Although it does have a little box that calls out this is the second of a three-part series. And in the next month, they're going to examine game controllers for the TRS-80 and some, it says, rather interesting arcade-type controls for the Atari. So it does indeed talk about using Atari joysticks on the Apple. There's a Sirius Joy port, apparently, which allows you to plug in some of the, the digital joysticks to the Apple, as well as something called the A-Star Octostick. And then we get into a lot of the database review stuff, and it's for different systems until we get to the one on the uh, File Manager 800. Right before we get there, there's an ad for the Franklin Ace 1000. And I don't remember seeing one before. I probably, maybe I've flipped through and just haven't noticed it. But having listened to some of the recent uh, RCR podcasts where Quinn Dunkey was on talking about uh, some of the Apple clones. So this is the Ace 1000. It's the first one that Franklin actually just used a, a copy of the Apple ROM. So Apple sued them and eventually forced Franklin out of business, but not before Franklin developed uh, other computers that had a reverse engineered ROM rather than a direct copy. But it's a a very famous lawsuit that apparently was one of the first copyright infringement lawsuits on computer code. So I'll include a couple links in the show notes to some interesting articles. And one of the articles that I'll link to, it it said Franklin had four strategies to try to get their case argued in their favor. And that first they said because the programs were in machine language, that was more an engineering product rather than a written product. And so copyright laws don't apply to engineering problems. Uh, second, Franklin said that, that because the programs were stored in ROM, it was a three-dimensional device and not like written code like on paper, so that's not protectable either. They said third, the OS that they had copied was more of an idea than an, an expression, and you can't copyright ideas. And then finally they said, you know, Apple's this big guy and we're the little guy, and we'd, you know, we'd go out of business. So initially, it looks like the trial court denied Apple's motion, and so they allowed Franklin to continue, but then the appeals court reversed the decision, holding that the programs in machine language were copyrightable, and it said wherever they were stored made no difference. And finally, saying that because Franklin had knowingly copied this stuff, doesn't give them any leg to stand on, saying that, well, Apple would put him out of business. Essentially saying, you know, you're going to steal stuff out of a warehouse, set up a storefront, and sell stuff that you've stolen, and then turn around and say that the big guys that you've stolen from can't put you out of business is, you know, totally not a legitimate argument. So, yeah, Apple won this case, and that sort of set the process in motion for a lot of other copyright cases in the future. I mean, it's easy to see why Franklin would target Apple rather than, you know, Atari or some of these other computers, because Apple, in you know, as the point of design, was off-the-shelf components. You know, Wozniak kind of designed this sort of open architecture, and, you know, the few chips that he designed himself to tie everything together were outweighed by a lot of just, you know, really highly available components. 
It's interesting. I don't know of any Atari clones. I wonder if that ever happened anywhere. All right, well, back to the magazine. This is the File Manager 800 review. A Manager for All Seasons is the title by John Anderson. So this is a database program in the sense of you can group a bunch of fields together in a record and then kind of page through each of the records, and then there's searching functions and things. It says, this is the only one on the Atari to make extensive use of all the color, sound, and extended text modes to simplify the use as compared to other ones. He doesn't particularly mention any other ones as a point of comparison. Wade over at Inverse Atasky has reviewed Synfile Plus, which is the successor program to File Manager 800. And so I'll include a link to his episode, Season 1, Episode 6, in the show notes. So I'm skipping all the other programs on the other systems. The only one that I noticed that is also applicable to the Atari is VisiCalc, because VisiCalc did get an Atari release. I noticed there's an ad for RearGuard still, and we'll say a little bit more about RearGuard when we get to the computer gaming world this episode. We then come to the review of Monkey Wrench. The article is called Prehensile Programming. It's reviewed by John Anderson. So this is the right cartridge, one of the few that was made, and it says it provides several helpful additions to Atari Basic. He apparently reviewed an early like version of it because it says, I cannot in good conscience call Monkey Wrench a ROM cartridge as it has no case to speak of. But certainly I've seen pictures of the, you know, with a cartridge shell and stuff. It's a little two-page review, kind of going over some of the commands that Monkey Wrench provides, like block deletion of basic lines, uh, renumbering, and interestingly says the renumber command uses the screen memory as a buffer, which, in for one, limits the number of lines that can be renumbered, but two, I wonder how it messes up the screen as it uses that buffer area. It says additionally a small machine language monitor is provided. He ends up giving it kind of a mixed review, saying the commands are useful, but it takes up some memory space, including part of page 6, which said could cause problems with some programs. There's a review of several Apple II games, and then we get to another article by John Anderson, Blast from the Past, where he reviews Deluxe Invaders and K-Razy Shootout. Deluxe Invaders is a really, really good port of Space Invaders. It plays really well. It's almost an exact clone of the arcade game. Uh, I really, if you're into Space Invaders at all, this is a really, really good port. The Atari for Space Invaders that I reviewed in Episode 1 by Rob Fulop is a good game, but it's not, it's sort of a reimagining of Space Invaders, where this is a really legitimate clone of Space Invaders. I had never played it before, and I don't know how popular it was. I'd never had a pirated copy or anything. I never saw one floating around, as far as I remember. And in my Twitter poll, the sort of conclusion of the, you know, 25 people who participated was they'd rather see either obscure games or type-in games reviewed rather than, you know, sort of popular commercial stuff. I don't know if this is a qualifier or not, but I, I don't know. I like this game well enough that I might actually review it and kind of see what makes it tick and how they get all the stuff to move around if they use scrolling or what to make the enemies. Okay, Razy Shootout is a Berserk clone. He likes it as well. I don't particularly like the Berserk arcade game. I mean, it's a classic, obviously. I, I'm not particularly enamored with it. I do like it a little bit better than K-Razy Shootout because the unfortunate thing about K-Razy Shootout is when you're running around, you know, instead of like having the little bouncy smiley face guy from Berserk, new robots just kind of appear and they'll just appear at random places. And if you happen to be standing in a spot, one will appear and just wipe you out right there, which seems like an unfair gameplay mechanic. The next review is of Dog Days and Caverns of Mars, both published by APX. The review is by Sandy Small. Dog Days was written by Gray Chang, and he was interviewed by Kay Savitz way back in the early Antic interview series. I'll include a link to that. And also there's a page by Gray Chang himself, a webpage that talks about the program. Dog Days is a two-player simultaneous game. There is no one-player mode. 
and the object is to get fire hydrants to match your color because you play as little dogs. You can either run over the hydrants as they appear or throw a bone, and then you have to avoid this really large car that comes zooming past occasionally. I'll have to play this one with my kids sometime. I tried to mess around with it as a one-player, like, playing both players, and that's just not very fun. Caverns of Mars is the other review, and that's a one-player game. And I've played that quite a bit, and we talked about that in episode four of this podcast. She had a very positive review and recommends this game to anyone who likes fast-paced arcade games in the style of Asteroids or Missile Command. Says the game was excellently implemented, and that when you know you lose in this arcade-style game, it was a mistake that you made and not a mistake from the program. There's a little box calling out some stuff about Greg Christensen, the author, claiming that he can't understand what all the fuss is about. And that's not a direct quote, and so I don't know where they got that. I guess the upshot is, like, he just created this game thinking it was no big deal, when in fact, you know, he turned it out in less than two months, and it won the Atari Star Award, and he's 17. In addition to the fact that it was the first program to make the transition from APX to the actual Atari catalog. And at the end, it says uh, they, Atari invited Christensen himself to collaborate on the creation of this ROM version. And then I'll quote here, young Mr. Christensen declined the offer. He wisely decided to pursue an uninterrupted college education. Doubtless, he has felt some pressure to surpass his feet, but has not succumbed. One cannot help but feel, however, that we may hear from him again. Perhaps a little too judgmentally for me, but he actually does come back and create Caverns of Mars too. Then we come to the article Waz and Us. Steve Wozniak speaks out on rock concerts, Berkeley, and New Apples by David H. Hall and Betsy Staples. So the first half of this article is about something called the Us Festival. And this is a rock concert that Wozniak sort of was the co-founder of. The concert was over Labor Day weekend. So this is a September issue. So it would have come out, you know, on newsstands in August. So it would have still been uh, current if you'd bought this magazine. It was held in the Glen Helen Regional Park, which is near DeVore or San Bernardino in California. Looking at the Wikipedia article, it says the site later became the Blockbuster Pavilion and currently is now the Glen Helen Amphitheater. So Waz says he was thinking about Woodstock, you know, lots of great groups in one place. But apparently subsequently to him sort of deciding to, to start this, he read a book called Barefoot in Babylon. And he said, I never would have done this if I read that book first. He says to uh, try to avoid some of the disasters that befell Woodstock, he said, we have some very professional people. We're not wild hippies with wild ideas. We want to make sure that it comes off well, that we look good, and the community benefits from it. He goes on to say that he's financing it, but he doesn't know if he's going to make a profit yet. And he thinks he's going to have to raise the ticket prices, that which are $15 per day and $35 for all three days. He said he had to keep 52% ownership so he could say that he had, like, you know, final say on the groups that were able to, to schedule. He said, I'd like to break even, but it's not currently forecasted to do that. I don't mind losing just once in my life. And the Wikipedia article today said it lost at least $12 million and said the attendance for the three days was about 400,000 people and that the actual three-day ticket price turned out to be $37.50. The set list for this concert is amazing. They had groups like Oingo Boingo, Ramones, Talking Heads, The Beat, B-52s, Police, Eddie Money, Pat Benatar, Santana, Tom Petty, The Cars, Fleetwood Mac, Grateful Dead, Jimmy Buffett, amongst others. Those are the ones that I would sort of recognize well enough to say, oh, I might go to that. In the second half of the article here, he starts talking about Apple and new computers. They asked him about an announcement for an upcoming Apple computer, and he said, I think with the Apple III, Apple learned a big lesson about feeling forced to bring out a product early or on a certain date. I think Apple will be much more likely to wait until they can come out with the complete product. And that's an interesting observation about the Apple III. I wasn't sort of aware that the Apple III had like a target date, and that's why some of the features maybe were not completed. 
there's a podcast about the Apple III called Drop Three Inches, and they have hiatus times rivaling my own times on hiatus. But if you want to learn more about the Apple III, that is the place to go. And then Was continues a little bit more in the article about more hardware issues, talks about processors, like how the 8086 is a 16-bit machine, but the 8088 is really an 8-bit machine. And then talking about the 68000, that it's really a 32-bit processor, even though the straight 68000 has a 16-bit data bus, but all the internal registers are all 32 bits. He continues talking about some of the problems of the upcoming machine, which presumably is the Lisa saying that they're building a very high-density floppy, but it's been a problem for them for a while. I said, it's been horrible, he said. But he says, I think this might possibly be the machine of the decade, saying that they're really focusing on the graphics and the windowing system, and said, Apple, like everyone else in the business, is heading toward a pure bitmap screen because memory costs so little now. Why bother considering anything else? And apparently at this time, Waz is not working for Apple because they ask him about what it's like to be an undergrad at Berkeley. And apparently he had to register under an assumed name He said some people have figured it out, but he doesn't know whether any of the professors have. He says he's in his final quarter there. And the author said they commented on how it's ironic that the founder of Apple Computer is studying computer science, and couldn't he be like one of the professors that are teaching this stuff? And he said, not really, because I'm more into finding solutions to problems. Sometimes I could teach things, but sometimes I have a lot of trouble. He said in his computer classes, he was just sitting back and working quietly. The first quarter, I worked hard to get A's. The second quarter, I worked hard enough to get B's. And this quarter, I could care less. And then they asked him if he plans to go back to Apple. And he says he's not sure he's going to take a rest and that he's working hard enough now that if he's staying up all night to do assignments, he might as well go to Apple and presumably get paid for it. So I'll skip over a couple database articles. And there's another actually database article called Comparing Prices by David H. All. It's an article using VisiCalc, but it's got a big table about arcade cabinet prices. and. I don't know how accurate these prices are, but if they're accurate, it's quite a good resource on prices of the time. So this is what, late 1982. One of the more expensive machines is a Defender cabinet, which, and he's got a list of like six vendors and, you know, arcade machines going down the columns for various vendors. Like a Defender machine seems like it costs in the neighborhood of $2,000 to $2,400. One of the cheaper machines is like a Lunar Lander cabinet, which is about $500. And this is I presumably not an exhaustive list of stuff, maybe 50 cabinets here. So again, the article is not sourced with what these vendors are and if these prices are even real. But if they are, it would be a, a good resource if you were looking to like historical arcade game pricing. Next article is an Apple graphics tutorial, The Graph Paper, Part 3, Moving Experience by David Lubar. And this is another Shape Tables article. It's not as down on Shape Tables as the article in last episode's Softline. But again, as I've mentioned before, I sort of thought it was the be-all, end-all thing to write arcade games in Apple's. But it turns out it's not. Of course, it's very slow. And then I, you know, got an Atari and found player missile graphics and found out how fast graphical animation could be with a computer that had specialized hardware. But this does go over the concepts of animation a little bit and basically boils it down to saying animation is very simple. You just put something on the screen, erase it, and place it somewhere else. But anyway, if you're into shape tables, you can check out that article. Continuing on, there's an article that's called The International Computer Problem Solving Contest. It's by Donald D. Peel. So apparently this is the second one. It summarizes that approximately 3,000 students at 400 contest sites located in 44 states and 16 foreign countries participated in the second annual International Computer Problem Solving Contest sponsored by the University of Wisconsin at Parkside. It was held in April in 82. It said the number of teams competing at each site ranged in size from a single team made up of the only kid in town who owned an Apple II to the entire southeastern portion of the state of Wisconsin, where 50 teams participated. 
There are three divisions, the elementary division from grades 4 to 6, the junior division, grades 7 through 9, and the senior division, 10 through 12, and teams of up to three students. So they were given five problems, and they had two hours to solve them. It does not give any results, and I couldn't find results from previous contests either. But what it does have is it includes copies of the entire test for both three, for all three divisions. It does not include the answers, and it also says in the article if these problems aren't enough for you, if you want more, they have appeared in previous Creative Computings in the September 1979 issue and the February 1981 issue, and as well as the October 1981 issue. And I will include a link in the show notes to Donald Peel's obituary that he died in 2014. There's a 10-page article, a modular database for the Apple, and I wouldn't mention this except it was written by Mark Pelzarski, who was a keynote speaker at Kansas Fest, last live Kansas Fest. It's about a 10-page article about a database program written in BASIC. There's an article on searching techniques by Edward Mitchell, talking about various types of search, like a sequential search, binary search, and then introduces hash tables. And here we come to an Atari article. This is the Atari Disk File Tutorial by Jerry White. It's a two-page article with uh, some basic listing, about 100 lines of basic. And it's talking about records, like fixed-length records and updating versus appending records. And the basic program kind of allows you to create some stuff and manipulate a test file. The next article is also an Atari one. It says, Getting Along Without Tab, an Atari Translation by Fred Pino. Says the lack of the tab command in Atari Basic is a source of irritation to many Atari users. And there's a couple of basic listings. The first is a listing from the Pet Basic, which has a tab command, and the second listing is how he got around the lack of the tab command in Atari Basic by essentially fiddling around with the tab widths using a poke statement and then printing an empty string followed by a comma, which then advances the print uh, cursor to the next tab. Then we come to the Outpost Atari by David and Sandy Small. This is the second half of the DOS menu overview, starting at option F, which is lock file, and then it goes through the rest. They take a little tangent when they get to the format disk option, talking about fast format chips, and also gets into the various different ways that the disks are formatted in terms of the sector layout. Because the disk is rotating, and it takes a you know, finite amount of time to read each sector, and then some additional time to process that, if the disk is laid out in such a way that the by the time the drive is ready to read the next sector, the next sector is about to appear, then he can be read as fast as it possibly can. Whereas if the sectors are laid out sequentially on the disk, the read head will have passed the next sector, and it'll have to spin almost all the way around again. So they talk about something called the B layout format, which was like one of the original ones, and the C format now they talked about is what comes with DOS 2.0s, and that's about 20% quicker than the B format. And then they say there's a, a group in Chicago that modified the B layout, which is, they said, 30% quicker than the B format and 10% quicker than the C format. But because this is a change in the ROM chip itself, then apparently these Chicago people, whoever they are, may be distributing this illegally, according to them. Apparently they say Atari copyrighted the B format in the ROMs, and because this is an EEPROM change, that they may be, may be violating the copyright. They also go into something about a problem with the Western Digital 1771 chips. Apparently on later disk drives manufactured by Atari, there's some piece of hardware called a data separator. And apparently the hardware spec of the Western Digital chip says not to rely on its own data separator and to use an external one, but Atari didn't provide that. Or, okay, it said they didn't provide it on earlier drives, but on later drives or drives they said manufactured after January 1st of 82 this data separator was included. So they said if you had drives manufactured before that, you can get a kit. And they said Percom makes a kit. And they helpfully include the phone number for Percom to call up and order your kit for twenty nine ninety five. 
And they cover the remaining DOS menu items and don't really add a whole lot. At the end of the article, though, they say that uh, the five and a quarter drive is sort of represents a compromise between the reliability of the eight inch drives and the cost effectiveness of the five and a quarter inch drive. They said Atari probably couldn't market an eight inch drive for less than $900, so they went with the five and a quarter and enabled many more to have drives. It was a good trade off. Unfortunately, though, they said the number one topic of conversation is disk drive reliability in user group newsletters, apparently. The drives are neither reliable nor fast, and even compared to the rest of the industry, Apple drives, they noted, run up to 20 times faster. And it is amazing to see at Kansas Fest when people have their Apple II set up. They have like disk duplicating programs that'll run like 10 seconds and it'll copy the whole front side of a disk. And I guess that's what you get for being able to control the drive from the actual computer hardware itself. And I guess there's pluses and minuses to that. One of the minuses, I guess, is that Apple II GS being compatible with the Apple II has to step its processor speed down to 1 megahertz in order for it to read 5 and a quarter drives. But among the many advantages are they're much cheaper and they're much faster. And there's another 50 pages in the magazine, but there's nothing super interesting. There's the IBM section and the TRS-80 section and the PET section. Nothing super exciting in the new products area. They say there's an Apple III users newsletter coming out for you fans of, the, of Drop 3 Inches. Most of the new products, in fact, are Apple-related. The only Atari thing I see in the new products section is something called KDOS, but it's not something from KByte Software. It looks like it's something else. It has a listing of a person, just E.A. Robinson Incorporated. It says it's a machine language monitor allowing you to sort of examine and alter memory and perhaps be something like a debugger, although it doesn't give any more information than that. But yeah, not related to KByte systems, apparently. Nope, I'm wrong. There is a couple games that are listed. It says Fathoms 40 and Cloak and Dagger from Horizon Simulations, released both for the Apple II and the Atari. Uh, don't haven't heard of those before. Yeah, I don't know them. On the inside back cover, we have some creepy figure, although it's not for the VIC-20. It says Commodore versus IBM, Apple Tandy, and all the others, and has kind of a comparison chart listing stuff, but it still says the maximum capacity of the disk drive is 500k. And it's the Commodore, what, 4016, which I guess is one of the pet machines. But still, that's got to be a lie. They can't have 500k on a floppy disk. And they, and they, down below, they even go further. It says Commodore CBM provides more storage power. One million characters on a five and a quarter. Oh, dual disks. Okay. But still, 500k on a disk? I don't know. I think you're lying, Commodore. And I'm going to endeavor to speed things up a little bit because we have 11 billion magazines to cover and I'm already looking at an hour of audio and we're only done with three magazines and we have, yeah, a lot more to go. While I'm not necessarily concerned about the length of the episodes, I do appreciate the fact that some people don't really like mega long episodes. I try not to make Player Missile too topical, you know, so you can pick up and pause this at any time and I don't think you really lose all that much. So I'm definitely not going to constrain myself to particular episode sizes. However, I'm also not shooting for Intellivisionaries length episodes, but that's a whole separate issue because the production values on the Intellivisionaries is much higher than mine. And I can't imagine Paul Nerman doing all the editing of that. That's like an insane amount of work. But I feel to some extent that you can embrace the Intellivisionaries theme of pause technology. And because my episodes are not super topical, you can pause and come back, and I won't feel slighted in the least. I'm recording what I want to record, and you're listening the way you listen, and we're all good. So here we are with the Atari Connection. This is the Fall 1982 issue. It's Volume 2, Number 3. Three bucks on the cover price. On the cover is the close-up of kind of an exterior of a school bus. It's showing about four windows of the school bus, and there are like five kids leaning out of it. It looks like they're kind of high school age kids, maybe. And they're all like smiling, gawking. Some of them are pointing at the three figures down on the street who are walking, carrying Atari computers. The text on the cover page says, Back to school, from colleges to elementary schools, Atari computer classes are the place to be. And it calls out the bookkeeper, which is new from Atari, the computer bookkeeping for the home office. 
and home computer photos. See how people across the nation are joining the home computer revolution. So this issue is 36 pages, although interestingly, they don't really start numbering the pages till the fifth page in the magazine. So the table of contents is on an unnumbered page, and we'll go through the whole magazine if quickly. Since this is an in-house publication of Atari, the only ads you see in the magazine are from Atari. And the inside front cover is a thing, save up to $60. And the text of the ad says, Now through December 31st, 1982, when you buy an Atari 400 home computer, Atari will send you $10 for each purchase of up to six additional Atari products. So in the fine print is like super tiny. It's so small that it's barely readable in the Internet Archive scan. But it says, buy up to six additional Atari home computer products, including joystick controllers and paddle controllers. And then you attach the proof of purchase of, from your, the 400 and all the other stuff, mail it in, and then it'll send you a check for up to 60 bucks. So make sure you postmark it no later than February 28th, 1983. The table of contents is pretty dense, but we'll just kind of skip over that since we'll I'll go through most of the magazine. In the Getting Acquainted section, they have uh, On the Road with Atari, Eric debuts at Consumer Electronics Show. And Eric is the Electronic Retail Information Center, which is that sort of stand-up interactive display with an Atari computer that lets people kind of walk up and experience the computer system. The special feature article is a small country school big on computers. Talks about a little town in Northern California called Manchester, population 462. And there's a new school there. Kindergarten through eighth grade, 38 kids attend. And they have Atari home computers that are learning both pilot and basic. There's a little ad for APX talking about a few new programs called WordMaker as an educational word game for ages six and up. Cubbyhole, which is a, I guess a game talking about addition skills. And Hickory Dickory, which is a time-telling program, all available from APX, and says, yeah, you should already be receiving issues of the APX catalog if you've sent in your warranty registration card. Next is a special feature international edition. It's the Computer Education in the Orient, a word which we don't really use anymore. We would now say East Asian, of course. So this is a little article about a school in Hong Kong that has some Atari computers. There's a couple pages of class photos where they are showing some students and teachers in uh, educational settings. Then another special feature article, Atari Home Computers Go to College, subtitled Atari 800s Awarded to Scholarship Students. So at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, there was something called the David M. Darren Rensselaer Scholar Program. So 21 top entering freshmen for the class of 85 received Atari Home Computer Systems in addition to $2,500 per year stipends. Wow. So there were six women and 15 men chosen for the first group. They got an Atari 800, two disk drives, an 850, a modem, printer, color TV, and assorted software. Systems will become the scholar's personal property when they graduate. Wow, that's a heck of a program. Said RPI has a powerful IBM mainframe that the, through the modem they can interface. Some of the software they received were the Atari word processor, Atari Pascal, which they note is available through APX. And they say the scholars found the modems most useful because they could connect to the mainframe and turn in their homework. They include a picture of one of the, I don't know, one of the buildings at RPI and another picture of one of the students surrounded by all the gear that she was given. Continuing in the special feature, the computer class is the place to be. Article is uh, over 700 Atari computers for Florida's Dade County. So it said Dade County was the nation's fourth largest school district, apparently at the time. They bought 700 computers, Atari 800s, <laughs> saying they had to serve, what, 230,000 daytime students, they said, in the public schools there. It doesn't say how many computers were allocated to each school, but just doing some quick math, you know, if there were 1,000 computers among 230,000 students, that'd be one computer per 230 students. So, so the ratio is worse than that. So it's probably one computer per 300 students maybe? But I guess so, so my school 
How big was my school? I'm probably, I don't know. I'm probably wildly underestimating this. I would guess maybe a thousand kids in the school. And we had one, two, three, four. I think we had five Bell and Hell Apple IIs. So I don't know. And, and of course we were, you know, maybe they don't put the computers in the low elementary. I don't know. At least they have some computers and they were Ataris. So that's excellent. And we have an article about the Atari computer camps. And this one in particular is focusing on the San Diego camp. You might remember that Kay Savitz has done an interview series. This is quite a few years ago now, where he talked to a bunch of people who were associated with the computer camps. I'll include a link to that episode in the show notes. There's a little news features section, a couple little snippets. One of them says Atari joins the force, said that Atari has kind of inked a deal with Lucasfilm to develop some games. And we end up, we know what they're going to turn out to be. But at this point, they're still, you know, far in the future. It said they recently completed uh, special effects for three of the summer's blockbuster films, Star Trek II, Poltergeist, and E.T. Ray Kassar says, We look forward to working with a company as innovative and creative as Lucasfilm. The association is a natural since both companies are leaders in our respective fields. Of course, this is pre-release of the E.T. cartridge for the 2600 that many people claim was the death of the 2600, although I think that is not at all the case. Howard Scott Warshaw, who wrote the game, just came out with a new book where he sort of like really leans into this and kind of embraces the fact that that he thinks he's the one to kill the video game industry. I mean, he seems very self-deprecating and, you know, aware there are lots of issues with the E.T. sort of timeline and development system. But, you know, he's clearly not to blame for the whole crash of the computer market. There's a lot of other stuff going on. And here I say I'm not going to be topical and I talk about a currently released book. But I do plan to read his new book, Once Upon Atari. So I guess you'll just have to deal with my inconsistencies. Oh, and hey, if you go to McDonald's, be uh, be aware there's a new game. The Rub and Win card game. It says it's featuring Atari computer games, Missile Command, Star Raiders, Asteroids, and Centipede. If you uncover a zap, you lose. But when you match special symbols, you can win McDonald's food prizes or an Atari home computer system. Also, it looks like the Defense Department has ordered nearly 1,400 Atari home computers for use in the schools around the world. So it says these schools educate approximately 140,000 dependents of U.S. military and civilian personnel. So that's about the same ratio of computers, 1 to 1,000. Here's a review of The Bookkeeper by Atari, Yeah, which I'll skip over. And there's a few pages of Atari computers in homes and how people have set up their, their systems. I remember my computer just kind of plunked down in front of the home, the TV, because we just had one TV. So these look like systems that are like dedicated things, like they have their own desk and at their own little place in the, in the house. Then there's the kid bid section. There's a couple of programs like Find the Bugs. There's a program puzzle by Tom Hudson. It's a little basic program and you have to figure out like which order the program goes in. And there's another find the bug challenge if you can so if you can find it in this little like 15 line basic program you send your entry into the uh, find the bug contest and uh, they'll read it in the next issue there's a book review here of the computer animation primer that's by David Fox and Michael Waite this article is by Jack Perrin and he talks about says the book starts from kind of scratch and introduces how to do computer animation from like theory and then moves into practical examples and there's a little sidebar with an interview with David Fox how he was always interested in animation, and that he chose the Atari to write the book about because no other computer has the sort of built-in features that the, of graphics that the Atari has. I actually have this book, the Computer Animation Primer. It's, it's, it is very good. There's an article about the pilot playground with a few examples of pilot programs. There's an Inside Atari column that talks about setting up a user's group. And there's two book reviews, one on VisiCalc and one on the Basic Handbook. And then we're at the back cover. There's the Atari gift catalog, where it shows a bunch of shirts and other cool stuff. There's a pretty cool Caverns of Mars shirt, centipedes, some Atari logo gear. 
And on the back cover is a girl with kind of like a bubble spacesuit helmet on, sitting on the floor of her bedroom with a dog sitting next to her, and she's playing Star Raiders. You can see the TV sort of above her and says, learn to brave new worlds, and talks about how your kids got the Atari for playing games, but you can do so much more with it. Kind of targeting, I guess, the parents. Saying that the Atari computer is your whole family's vehicle to a more imaginative, exciting, and manageable world. And the best part is, getting there can be so much fun. And now it's once in a blue moon, I'm going to take a look at the Byte magazine for this month. This is September 1982, volume 7, number 9, $2.95 in the US, $3.50 in Canada, £1.85 in the UK. It's got another nice Robert Tinney painting on the cover. This one is a close-up of a keyboard, and the keys are kind of blue and you know, shaded in a 3D look, except there's one key that's a light gray, and on it there's a symbol for a wheelchair user. And the text below says, Computers and the Disabled. We're primarily going to cover this because there's a really nice article on Star Raiders and strategies for the game. There are several articles shown in the table of contents about computers and the disabled, as they say, you know, now we would say physically challenged or however their particular ability was limited, but that, of course, disabled was the term of the time. Looks like there's a couple of overview articles about how computers were used during this time. There's one article on Braille. There's another about talking terminals. There's an article about building a text-to-speech synthesizer. But really, the only thing I'm going to cover is the article on Star Raiders. And it is not called out on its own heading. It's called out as part of the Bytes Arcade section. And yeah, there's just not enough Atari content to warrant going through this magazine, you know, article by article. So we'll just skip right to the Bytes Arcade section. And that's on page 362 out of, well, the Internet Archive reports 609 pages, but I think a few of those are some of the little, you know, inserts and things that get copied in some of these scans. There is a review of the game Swashbuckler, which is for the Apple II, although Atari Mania reports there's an Atari version, but it doesn't have the scan for it. I tried looking it up on the Homesoft and other archives and couldn't find it either. It's published by Datamost, the people who did Aztec, and it's a similar game to Aztec where it's this sort of large, like, high-resolution sprite figure that's, like, drawn as a soft sprite, you know, on the order of, like, 50 pixels tall or something. But yeah, if there was an Atari version, it doesn't seem to be available. There's another review of an Apple game, Zero Gravity Pinball, which also does not seem to have been apported to the Atari. Another Apple game, Beer Run, which I do remember seeing on the Apple, not on the Atari again. And finally, we get to Advanced Star Raider Tactics and Strategies. This is written by C. Donald Harris Jr. of Friendswood, Texas. And it's interesting, throughout the article, he refers to it as Star Raider, not Star Raiders. And I always thought it was Star Raiders. But I guess there was a run of maybe some of the first cartridges had Star Raider on them. I think there was a discussion on Atari Age at one point. And I don't think Star Raider versus Star Raiders. I don't think Star Raider is particularly rare. I mean, in terms of cartridge labels. But I think the general consensus is, is that Star Raiders is the real name of the game. Certainly that's what the title screen of all the versions I have says. Let me prepare you for the level of detail in this article. It covers parts of eight pages. But of course, this being Byte, that means it's spread across like 15 pages. There are multiple tables, charts, and graphs. There's charts of energy versus speed usage, graphs of energy required versus number of sectors traveled. There's tables of damage priorities. This is a serious, like, research paper into Star Raiders. So he starts out the review saying, I assume that by now most people who own both an Atari 400 or 800 computer and the Star Raider game cartridge have either reached some level of proficiency or given up the challenge entirely and gone on to other interests. This article is directed toward those of you who have mastered the easier levels of the game, who thoroughly understand Atari Star Raider user manual, and are ready to attempt more hazardous adventures. So not for the weak at heart, this article. 
So he pretty much dismisses the novice and pilot levels as being too easy, saying that those levels of the ship is small and almost indestructible and will only be attacked from the front, whereas the warrior and commander levels require considerably greater skills, he says. Says your ship is more vulnerable and will be subjected to aft or even simultaneous attacks from front and aft. He says he looks at the warrior level as the basic training level for the commander level, and it says don't expect much in the way of rankings if you do the warrior level because it says the completion bonus is too small. So he recommends training for a week or so at the warrior level, and then go on to the commander level. It says first, though, you should have a fair amount of proficiency at the pilot level. So, like he says, to be able to fly on instruments, meaning that you have sort of an instinctive reaction as to where the enemy is given the azimuth elevation and range from the display gauges. He then talks about battle plans. He says to properly prepare to wipe out your enemy, your battle plan should be designed around three priorities. Survival, defensive starbases, and energy conservation. He recommends studying the galactic chart and using your jumps to move from place to place more efficiently. And this is where the chart of energy use versus number of sectors traveled in hyperspace is shown. It's almost a linear graph between like one and four sectors traveled. But once you go from four up to nine sectors traveled, the graph it like doubles or triples in slope. So it's much more costly to travel five sectors or further. So he recommends staying within four, just doing small jumps of four sectors each, you know, as you plan your route. He says at the beginning of the game, you won't really be able to figure out what star bases the Xylons are targeting. So he recommends kind of sticking around the galactic center, picking off the nearest ones until it's kind of clear where they're headed. He recommends that once you do find the star base they're after, kind of stick close to there and let them come to you. And he recommends targeting the two and three ship fleets first before you head to the four fleet groupings. He says when you're in the battle, the main objective, of course, is to survive, but the other one is to conserve energy. And his reckoning is the most important of these is to avoid being hit by the enemy shots because the shield gets damaged at a cost of 100 energy units each time it absorbs a blast. And also, you know, each time you get hit, you also risk getting one of your systems damaged. And some of the systems of which there's a table listing what you should do when a system gets damaged or destroyed. Uh, It costs you time as well as energy and can be the difference between surviving and not surviving. He says that each trip to a star base could cost anywhere between 300 to 800 energy units, or mergs. And he says that 800 mergs is equivalent to about eight final score points. So I guess is that 100 merg per final score point? Which he says 800 points is the difference between the rank of Star Commander 1 and Star Commander 2. And he doesn't mention it in the article, but in the user manual for Star Raiders, there is actually a formula that gives you the ranking. And so, yeah, it is the energy used divided by 100. So, yeah, so eight points for 800 energy units. And so, yeah, then looking at the manual, it, the mission score is your bonus for the ranking, either novice, pilot, warrior, commander, plus six times the number of enemies you destroyed, minus the energy used over 100, minus the time over 100, minus 18 times the number of star bases that were destroyed, actually 18 times the number of star bases destroyed by the enemy, minus three times the number of star bases destroyed by you, so if you cause them to self-destruct. And also in the manual is sort of a table version of the graph that he included here, the speed versus energy cost. And he's claiming that the manual says that speed 6 is the most efficient, and he says his tests show that the most efficient speed is actually 8. And he references another figure that he calculated, says measuring energy consumed for distances of 500 and 900 metrons, the distance unit. 
And so really what he's saying is that the even though the, the cost of the Speed 6 is the most efficient, you're also powering all this other stuff as well. So you have to run, you know, your shields, your computers, life support, all that stuff. That's an energy drain. And that, the longer you run that over time, also, you know, drains your energy requirement. So if you can get someplace faster, you have less power drain from the other systems. And so that's what that table shows. And so then the farther you go, the better it is to actually use a higher speed. Then the graph really is almost flat from speed six to nine. And so there's definitely one thing that I've learned from this article. I sort of believe the manual about, you know, speed six. And so that's kind of what I would fly, but not thinking about all the other systems. So that's, yeah, I've definitely learned something here. He then goes into some battle tips, noting that a lot of times when coming out of hyperwarp, you'll like overrun an enemy, like blast right pie him. So he says, if that happens, immediately go into a hard left or right turn, which is going to start the process of getting the enemy back into the, you know, on the front side of your ship. And then as the enemy starts to approach, keep him off to the side and low, so kind of, I guess, on the lower corner of the display, saying that it's to avoid the photon hits and damage. So only when the enemy is about 20 units away do you really start to bring him to the center of the screen to use the crosshairs and and shoot him that way. He reminds to conserve photons because they cost energy, and then don't let him get much closer than 20 units because they might just zip around behind you and then start attacking from the back. He says, if two ships are attacking from the front at once, concentrate on the one closer to the center of the screen first. He recommends not bothering with the aft attack. He said he found it too difficult for him, where all the joystick movements are reversed. He says, if you can do it, great, but he said he didn't have any problem reaching Star Commander 1 without mastering the aft attack. Instead, he recommends just using a hard turn and bringing the enemy in front of you, and says that you're almost never actually hit while you're spinning that way. And finally, the main part of the article wraps up with, how do you know when to cut and run? Said for some kind of damage, there's no doubt, but some systems are more important than others, and so it has this table. So your number one priority is your shields. If they're damaged or destroyed, hyperspace at once and get out of there. It says if your photons are damaged, you can still finish the sector if you're at even odds or better, but if they're destroyed, you have to hyperspace. If your computer and sector scanner are damaged, go ahead and finish the sector if it's even odds or better, but destroyed, then you should hyperspace. If your subspace radio or your computer are damaged or destroyed, finish the sector. But if your engines or sector scan are damaged or destroyed, he says continue. So I'm not exactly sure what he means, and he doesn't really clarify that in the text. And he gives a final hint. It says your subspace radio is much more important early in the game than it is later, when enemy ship movements are not as threatening. So presumably as you clear out stuff near the star bases, then you have less reason to have need immediate like updates. So then there's a sidebar with a bunch of tips. There's understanding the Xylons and saying that their goal is to destroy the starbases. And so to do this, they surround a starbase, cut off its supplies and kill it, then build two ships out of the wreckage. And he says, once the starbase is surrounded, you only have a certain amount of time to save it. In the planning section, he says that while you're docked at a starbase, you can view the galactic chart and set up for your next jump. And then when the transfer complete happens, you can immediately hit the four view and then hyperspace to start. And he says, not only does this save time, but you get to watch the repair ship flash by and probably scare the dickens out of the crew. Says the Xylon task forces vary in size, and the smallest ones always move toward the starbases fastest, so hit those first. Another pro tip here says Xylons jump into hyperspace on time units ending with dot zero and dot five. So it says check the time when you're planning to jump. So if it's the if the clock is near point four oh and point four nine or between point nine oh and point nine nine, it's probably worth your time to wait and watch, and the ship will likely move someplace else that you know that you were planning. So that uh, that's a good tip. Another one, as long as your subspace radio is working, you'll get a message when a starbase is surrounded, which he says is more important early in the game. And he says, if you know if you can't save a surrounded starbase, just go in and blow it up yourself. And yeah, as noted in the manual, you're penalized for a destroyed starbase, but not as much had the enemy destroyed the base. 
Another energy saving tip is save energy by turning off shields and stuff during hyperwarps. And it says you can use the hyperwarp directly to a starbase by centering the indicator on the attack computer display as you enter the starbase's sector. So lets you coast right up to the base. Another energy saving tip, if you can't swerve to avoid a shot, you can blow up the enemy's shots because a photon costs you 10 energy units, but taking a hit costs 100 and plus the chance of damage. For battle techniques, says that your fired shots never go above the horizontal crosshair on your screen, so just keep the xylons below that for the best chance to hit. And he says the shots that hit you, if they hit you at the center of the screen, it does more damage than if it hit you on the sort of the sides of the screen. Some tips when your equipment is damaged. It says when your ion engines are damaged, the velocity indicator flickers between 0 and 12, but if you try to select a speed, it flickers between 0 and 6. So he says if you're going to continue the attack when your engines are damaged, don't touch the speed anymore, just leave it where it is. His thinking, I guess, is that if you try to touch the speed, you actually get less speed out of it than you would have with the damaged engines left in place. And then he says your hyperwarp engines can be used within a sector. If your ion engines are damaged, just abort the hyperjump by selecting a zero. But then he says you'll lose the speed advantage that you just had with the flickering, and it costs 100 energy units to abort the warp. And then he notes a couple of bugs. One, of course, is the famous slowdown when the explosions are going on. Although there is that improved version that I talked about way back when that I wanted to do, but then Avery Lee ended up coding up that speeds up the explosions by quite a bit. There, I mean, there's still some slowdown, but not nearly as bad as it was. He also says that at higher difficulty levels, some enemy rounds may seem to go by but still score damage. I haven't really played it at the higher rounds to notice if that happens. Then finally, a bug you notice says the tracking computer sometimes will switch to an aft view if you destroy a Xylon that's in front of you, but after he's fired a shot. So it switches to the aft view, but then the shot still hits you. So he says if you notice the tracking computer shifting, that you should uh, immediately try to swerve and avoid that situation. So I certainly learned a lot from this article. It's quite an in-depth tutorial for advanced Star Raiders piloting, and that's all we'll cover in the Byte magazine. Let's take a quick look at the computer and video games. This is September 1982, 75p on the cover price. It's a mostly black cover. There's a sash on the top that says OWL, the BBC Micro Magazine, issue 2 inside. But the focus is, of course, the center image of Tron. It's a picture of Bruce Boxleitner and his Tron getup with sort of this blue halo all around him. And it says, Tron, inside a game looking out. And other text on the cover says, game listings for the Atom, Pet, Atari, ZX81, Spectrum, and many more. And also, win a Bally Pinball. The table of contents highlights the Tron article. It says, The Shape of Films to Come. That's Tron, the latest eye-dazzling epic from Walt Disney Studios. And it's an article by Fred Dignazio, an almost duplicate of some other stuff we've seen written by him about Tron. So we'll see that in a moment. Only one Atari thing called out in the table of contents, a game called Bomber. And as we start to flip through, there's a plea from the Atari in the mailbag section. It's a disgruntled person saying that the monthly games programs for the Atari are slowly deteriorating says, in fact, the last two published, i.e. Double Barrel and Boeing, are an insult to the capabilities of the Atari. It says, come on, C and VG, let's have some more interesting listings up to the standard of mini-golf and changing hearts. The editor replied that they did have some good long games published, but they try to balance it out with some short games and some long games, and then says they pay £10 each for each published listing, apparently essentially trying to, like, get more people to submit stuff to the magazine. So yeah, I thought they may have some, like, staff programmers, but I guess they don't. I guess it's all just user submissions. There's a little section on the VCS, a few games that they talk about, Star Voyager, Star Master, Berserk, Trickshot, and there's an ad from Atari doing showing some of the um, games that they have, the first party games, Star Raiders, and Basketball, Missile Command, then like European countries instead of states and capitals. 
There's an ad for the Dragon 32 computer, which I guess is mostly compatible with the TRS-80 color computer, but I mostly mention it just because of the annoying tendency for the people to be sexist. Like, it says, read this ad to your wife, as if women wouldn't buy computers for themselves. There's basic games for the Acorn Atom, the TRS-80, the ZX-81, the Spectrum, an 8K Pet, and then we come to the game Bomber that runs on a Atari 406K, which I presume to be a typo since there weren't any 6K Ataris, I assume they mean 16K. Apparently it requires joysticks and says, Beware the bouncing bombs! They'll get you given half a chance, and contact with one of these hopping horrors is decidedly lethal. You can protect yourself with a blast from your cannon, which destroys the bobbing bombs. Your cannon is situated on the right side of the Atari screen, and the bombs bounce at you across the screen from the left. You control the firing base using a joystick, so keep ducking and weaving and stay alive. And there's no screenshot. And it looks like it might be, it's probably, well, it's probably less than 100 lines of basic. It's just on these two facing pages, so I don't know. Then we got some more stuff. We got a 1K ZX81 game called Mini Defender. That's about 20 lines of basic. We got Pac-Man on the VIC-20 in 3.5K. We got Alien Lemmings on an Apple. Doesn't say what size Apple. And that looks like the end of the listings, at least for the moment. Then we come to the article on Tron by Fred Ignazios' The Making of Tron. And kind of goes over a lot of stuff that he's written before previously. And I can't remember exactly what magazine it was in. I don't have a good, like, reference system to go back and look. But a lot of this stuff seems familiar. The one thing that's new is saying this is sort of after the film has been released in the U.S. and says uh, critics of the movie said it was uh, shallow and had comic book characters, weak plot, and overuse of special effects. And he says the critics' observation is apt. Tron frequently gets lost in its own wizardry. But perhaps the best way to look at Tron is the granddaddy of a new generation of movies. Tron is the first bold step into a new era which computers and humans together produce films more magical than anything we've ever seen. So I would take that as a true statement. And that's about it for the magazine. There is this OWL, this BBC Micro Supplement. Here in the archive.org scan is tacked at the end. I kind of wonder if it was like an insert in the middle of the magazine. It's not clear what the binding is, but it's 16 pages and it's just a little like extra info about the BBC and a few little programs. Weirdly, it has an ad for programming your ZX Spectrum in the middle of this BBC section. So I guess Clive was out to get uh, Acorn at any cost. Alrighty then, on to Computer Gaming World, Volume 2, Number 5, September, October 1982, $2.75 on the cover price. The cover is a largely green field in the background, and in the foreground is the sort of cockpit section of a, looks like a fighter jet, although the pilot, instead of wearing a flight suit, is wearing sort of like a full space suit. And on the side, it says Defender Earth Forces, and has like 12 green little space invader aliens on the side as if they were like, you know, kills. And turning to the next page, it has the table of contents. It also has a from the editor, which says Computer Gaming World, with the publication of this issue, has completed its, and sick, first year of covering the computer gaming field. The sick is for them using IT apostrophe S instead of just ITS. Anyway, that didn't seem right to me because this is volume two, number five. But I went back and looked, and so apparently they're going volumes by years. So all the 1981 issues were in volume one, and there was only one of those. And so then, since it's bi-monthly, it is now volume two, number five. Five issues in this year, 1982, plus the one in 1981, means this is the first, like, full year of coverage. In this, they go on to say that they expect to see increase in quality of software, but not necessarily increase in the number of companies publishing software, saying they see increased competition in the gaming industry and the state of the economy apparently being bad. Um, we know that the video game crash sort of happens in 83, but that the computer side is sort of not really connected to that. That's more the home console, you know, the 2600. But their assumption is the uh, natural attrition in the business world means that we'll see fewer companies in the next couple of years. And that might have been a fine guess, but I think that was incorrect in actuality. 
turns out they could not predict the future, but us in their future, looking at our past for their future, can predict their future in our past pretty well. There is a mention of Atari in the table of contents. It says Atari exploiting the human connection, the human element in computer gaming. But as we'll see, it doesn't actually review any particular Atari game. It's talking about sort of a trend and games that they uh, like to see. But nothing else mentioning Atari. There's a column called Inside the Industry by Data Lombardi. So it says, for the first feature in this new column for CGW, we conducted a survey of 150 computer software manufacturers to find out what their best-selling titles are. And so there's a big chart listing about, I don't know, 40 titles or so. And it said that, turns out there's no relationship between the number of new releases and how many sales the publisher's top game does. And they mentioned specifically a game we've talked about, Rearguard. It said Adventure International, which is sold primarily by mail order, introduced 55 new games in 1981, and their bestseller is Rearguard as of December 81, with 3,400 copies sold. And this is on the other hand, Arcade Plus made only one game in 81, Ghost Hunter. And as of November 1981, they've sold over 23,000 copies, almost all through stores. And so this top sellers list is as of June 30th of 1982, and they say it's hard to compare all these because some, like Choplifter, was released like really late in May 1982, and so it's only in June. And some of these have been out since, you know, like Zork, they mentioned, as is released in February of 1981. So it's not really an apples-to-apples comparison here. And additionally, they say, like, Atari doesn't release any of the figures, so they don't know how well their best-selling game, Eastern Front, compares to any of these on the release chart. So the top of the list is K-Razy Shootout, uh, selling 35,000 copies. Then Zork 1, 32,000 copies. Temple of Apsai, 30,000 copies. Flight Simulator from Sublogic for 30,000 copies. And then on down, there's probably another 10 with 20 plus thousand copies. And then another 4 or 5 with uh, 15 or 10,000. And Choplifter there with 9,000 copies, but it was only released in May of 82. And this is like as of the end of June of 82. And as we know, Choplifter went on to become one of the best-selling games of all time for the 8-bit system. And so pulling back to Rearguard for a second, 3,400 copies sold. It doesn't here discriminate between the Apple and Atari versions, and or I guess TRA 80 version as well, which, as we remember, was a very, very blocky thing. The Atari version was, shall we say, subpar compared to the Apple version. So I imagine most of these sales were the Apple version. And a little foreshadowing, we will come back to the sales number of 3,400 and Rearguard in the next episode. So I've read a bit into the future. They have a couple pages of, like, new releases. There's one that mentions an Atari that's a soccer game, but it doesn't say what the publisher is. There's an industry news page where they list a couple things, like saying that Epics slash Automated Simulations has moved to a new location, 1043 Keel Court in Sunnyvale. There's an article called Software Piracy, The Slaying of the Hydra by Roar Adams III. And it's kind of a rambling thing that's uh, not really worth covering. There's another ITS, IT apostrophe S confusion in here. And it's kind of meandering. The point, I think, is that software should be priced low enough so it's not like tempting to copy. But it was a very kind of meandering, winding article and not worth spending much time on. There's a review of Starblazer for the Apple II, unfortunately, by Tony Suzuki. The Atari version, also written by Tony Suzuki, was was slightly different, and it actually took advantage of the capabilities of the Atari, and we talked about that, I think, two episodes ago. Here's the article, Atari Exploiting the Human Connection, by David Myers. The author kind of talks about how when they buy a game, they have sort of an expectation in their head, and then when they get it home and start to play it, it's much different. He says his favorite game is Eastern Front, and kind of uses that as an example of a good game, whereas a lot of games don't have this sort of clear-cut direction on the part of the game designer. 
he kind of calls out games that try to exploit the technical abilities of their computer versus the games that challenge the people who are playing them. Obviously, Holding Eastern Front up as a good example. It may not be the most technically advanced game, but it has a lot of stuff that challenges the player in terms of taxing the player's capabilities rather than taxing the computer's capabilities. He then comes up with like an ideal game in sort of four categories. Like an ideal arcade game is just using around comparing, you know, people's final scores to each other and there being some way of communicating that final score to other people. In role-playing games, the ideal game being some that you can replay and revise your experience with the game the next time you play it. And he's really building towards like multiplayer games. And so he says that you know, player interaction during gameplay is like the ultimate achievement. And then his final fourth example is network games. And he says there haven't really been any yet, but he says there are hints. And he talks about like deck wars and space wars on the source, you know, one of the online systems at the time. But he says the true value of any game from Apple Panic to Yars Revenge comes from sharing the experience with other real life players, exchanging strategies and tactics and gaining insights into both games and gamers. And then there's a little sidebar. It says, note Atari readers, in place of Atari Arcade, CGW encourages Atari readers to begin a dialogue with David on Atari Gaming. And then it quotes a message from David here. Hey, Atari gamers, where do you want to go? Since computer games aren't presently providing us with a gamer group consciousness, we're going to have to do this on our own. The old mechanical way through physical effort and paper and pencil. Write me with your opinions, things you like about the current Atari game crop, and just importantly, things you don't like. And then he describes one of the games he likes, Eastern Front. You know, his good features are graphics and the AI, but then the bad features like the buzzing sound when you accidentally input a diagonal move, but then he says the more annoying thing is the game's complete shutdown after the final move. He says, suddenly after two hours of intense combat, I can no longer find out the names of my units. So then he asks, what's the worst element of your favorite game? I'll look forward to hearing from you. And then he gives his address, David Myers in Austin, Texas. Holy cow, about two blocks away from where I lived in college one year on North Lamar Boulevard. Huh. Of course, about 10 years before I got there, but still, that's funny. Next is a review of Guadalcanal Campaign, an Apple game from SSI. Galactic Gladiators, this one for Apple and Atari. It's from SSI as well. Although it says that, and I look up Atari Mania, and it doesn't have it listed, and I can't find an image for it, so maybe it was intended to be released, but it wasn't actually released for the Atari. Here's a review of The Road to Gettysburg, also Apple II only. There's quite a few ads for stuff here, but most of them are Apple II as well. I've yet to see an ad that mentions anything Atari-related. Next, we come to a review of Cytron Masters. It says, The View from a Playtester by Mark Botner. Cytron Masters was a game, the reviews for the Apple II, it was actually also released for the Atari. It's a game by Danny Button. It's sort of a combination arcade slash strategy game. I watched a YouTube video and I cannot figure out what's going on. And so this is written. He apparently was a playtester. Talks about watching the game grow from a, a small idea to a complete program. Said he was able to help not only with bugs in the program, but with ideas and suggestions, which were readily accepted says it's different from other war games because instead of being like turn-based, it's continuous. It says the players end up like managers, so they manage these little robot units and apparently give them like orders and they do various things. It says there's six types of Cytrons, mines, bunkers, shooters, commanders, missiles, and anti-missiles. The battlefield is conveniently sized to stay within a like normal 40 by 24 column screen. It's 18 by 38 is your battlefield area, so nicely has the border on the side. So there's four things you can do. You can either make units, you can direct them, you can order a group of them to do something, or you can locate the, to position the beam point anywhere on the playfield, whatever the beam point is. Not made clear. Oh, apparently the beam point is where new Cytrons emerge after you make them. Yeah, so I guess it's like a robot battle game. It says victory is achieved through destruction of your opponent's command center. Maybe this is a game that some enterprising people will use the new Fujinet and play like multiplayer across the network. 
And related to that, there's an article, Real World Gaming, by Danny Button, who was the author of the game that was just reviewed. And this is a very interesting article. It's almost as if we are getting here a preview of the thoughts that went into making Mule, because this set of articles is about how to construct and design strategy games. So she talks about her formal education being in ops research, operations research, which is sort of using math and statistics to sort of simulate problems and create solutions. It's kind of like applied, applied mathematics. So the article talks about strategy games falling into five phases. First, system definition, data collection, model development, programming, and then playtesting. And the remainder of this article is on the system definition phase, saying that that can be divided into the boundary of the system and its objective, the list of the internal system elements, the relationships between the elements, and the list of the outside influences on the system. The boundary is kind of like the scope, you know, so you're setting your limits on what you're going to cover and what you're not going to cover. The example given, if you're going to make like a football game, you can set the boundaries as wide or narrow as you want. You can either just focus on the gameplay itself within the field, or you can focus on larger stuff, including like the player salaries, the managing and the coaching, recruiting, that kind of stuff. So it's, there's nothing wrong with setting a boundary wherever you want. You just have to know what you're setting. Next, the internal system elements, and look at this list here and see if this is familiar to anybody. It says, for example, in designing a business game, the element list might include raw materials, production plants, workforces, finished product, advertising, and the amount of products sold. Hmm, this sounds familiar. I wonder what game she's got in her head right now. The next part of the design is the relationship between these elements, and again, see if this sounds familiar. The finished product relates to raw materials, labor, and the plant to build it. The unit sold is related to the finished goods and the cost of advertising. The profit is the unit sold times the price minus the costs. I mean, the visions of Mule just must be totally in her brain right now. The last step in the system definition phase is to list the external influences, like the rate of growth in the economy, the inflation rate, cost of taxes and government regulations. I mean, yeah, this is just like we are having a window into the design of Mule. And says in the next issue, we'll look at how to collect the data to create your model. So I am definitely looking forward to this. There's an article, New Scenarios for Invasion Orion by Floyd Matthews. And this is, looks like a strategy game from Epix or Automated Simulations. I think it's a text-based thing. Looking at a Atari Mania, it seems like there's just text screens. It's a very complicated game, and this is a very technical article, so it's hard to delve into from somebody who's never played this game before. But if you're interested in it, it looks like it has a lot of suggestions. There's some micro-reviews, a couple columns on a few games. There's a Firebug. These are all Apple games. Firebug, Demon Forge, Epic, uh, Cannonball Blitz. And the one Atari game is Battle Trek. It's by Voyager Software. It looks like some sort of simulation game, but I haven't found a YouTube video, and it, there's no manual on Atari Mania. And I could boot it up and try it myself, but it looks like it's pretty complicated, so I'm not going to take the time. So you get what you pay for, I guess. Yep, and that's about it for this magazine, and we'll return in two months' time for, yeah, a continuation of Danny Bunton's article. I'm definitely looking forward to that. We'll do a quick scan of Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. This is September 1982, issue number 52, bucks fifty for the U.S. Canada edition, bucks ninety-five for the international edition, and pound eighty for the United Kingdom edition. It's their usual cover, you know, looking backwards out through the monitor over the keyboard, showing a view of a train on the left side and a majestic sort of mountain peak, snowy, with uh, some, like, forest in the front. The train kind of going through, cutting through the mountain and wrapping around behind some trees. It says a 68,000 feature. And there's AD conversion on the Atari, superimposing TV pictures with the pet, and Apple program compressor. But we're going to do a little more than cover the table of contents because there's not that much in here of interest. In that table of contents, there's three articles on the 68000, which is a great processor. I really, back, you know, in this era, 80s, when assembly language was still really a thing, the 68000 has a really nice assembly language. If you have to program an assembly language, 68000 is a great one to to use. 
The only thing in it about the Atari is the AD conversion using a 555 timer IC. So we'll look at that a little bit to the extent that I understand anything of hardware, which is not much at all. And the compressor, it turns out, for the Apple is an AppleSoft optimizer. So we'll probably skip over that. So really, we'll just skip right to the article on the AD conversion thing for the Atari. And since I don't understand anything about electronics, I'm just going to read the summary here. It says, for applications not requiring high-speed analog-to-digital conversion, the simple 555 timer circuit yields a high dynamic range for very low cost. And then it says, although demonstrated with an Atari 800, this 55580 converter may be used by any computer with one unused bit on an input port. And it looks like it talks about how the Atari can sort of do this already using the paddle controller, but I guess this is a way to do it sort of, yeah, with more range. But yeah, I don't understand any of this. The parts I do understand saying that you can turn off DMA and the vertical blank and stuff so you don't get like timing issues related to when the, the non-maskable interrupts happen. But that's it. So yeah, if you have any knowledge of this, you might understand this, but I don't. And uh, I think we'll just leave it there. Yeah, and that's all we're really going to cover here. If you like the 68,000, there's a bunch of good articles on the 68,000, but that's not really the focus of, of the podcast here. So while I do sort of have some nostalgia for programming in 68,000 assembly, that's not my podcast here. The only other thing I will mention briefly is that System 68 is still advertised in this issue, and I've not discovered anything about that ever being published or available. Let's move on to Softline, the new magazine in the coverage. This is Volume 2, September 1982, $2 on the cover price. It says, Murder on the Micro, Who Done It? And there's a sort of shadowy figure standing in a doorway over a collapsed person on the ground, so it's a murder mystery. In the table of contents, they list an article, Atari Sound, Music of the Spheres, by Bill Williams. Nothing else Atari in the in the table of contents itself, so I will scan through the brief 40 pages and we'll find stuff as I go here. There's a letter to the readers saying Softline will no longer be free, and in this letter it says, It's time to put to bed the myth that Softline is an advertiser-sponsored publication. And basically they're saying that they haven't really been able to increase the number of ads in the magazine and that their costs go up because their production costs go up. And so they have to turn to the readers to help bear the expense, as they say. So from here on out, it's going to cost $12 for six issues. In the reader feedback section, there's a a comment from Stuart Pierce from Picayune, Mississippi, saying that he enjoyed this game Journey to the Planet Pincus in the May issue, and he converted it to Atari Basic, and so he lists the changes needed for that. So if you're a fan of that program, you can find out how to convert it to the Atari. There's an interview with the programmer Jim Nichols. The interview is by Matthew T. Yuen, and I was all excited because there's a picture of Jim Nichols sitting right next to an Atari 800, and so I was looking forward to a lot of Atari info, and as it turns out, there's not a lot. He's credited on Atari Mania as programming the game Bug Attack, but the giant list of uh, classic game programmers doesn't have him there. He just has him programming the Apple II version. What the giant list does have is it shows him porting several games like Archon and Archon 2. So I wonder if that's why he has the Atari in the background of this photo is because he's using it to like play some of those games in order to convert it to the Apple II. So yeah, so in summary, the giant list of classic game programmers says he's an uh, Apple II programmer, and all looks, it does look like he has one game for the GS, but nothing programmed for the Atari. And unfortunately, it says yeah, he died in 1998, so that's a bummer. There's a brief little article on Matthew Laborto, who at this time was an actor on Little House on the Prairie, but I know him as, as the star of the 83 show WizKids. I didn't remember the network, so I had to look it up. It was on CBS. It only ran for one season, but it was like these four kids who had this... I, as I remember... I'm not looking this up, so I'm just going off my memory here. But as I remember, they had some sort of talking computer that was hooked into some sort something. Some... I don't know if it was FBI or something, but so they were getting information on crimes and then would solve them. And then they had some sort of like down on his luck 
robot cop who they somehow befriended. I don't know if this is what I remember. I That was like my favorite show. And I remember trying to get back at whatever night, I don't know, Wednesdays or whatever night it was on in order to make sure I could still see the show. I'm absolutely sure it's much better in my memory than in real life. And in fact, in Kansas Fest 2019, the last in-person Kansas Fest, there's a table read of one of the WizKids episodes. But this interview with Matthew Laborto is pre-WizKids, and it sounds like he's doing all right because he apparently took a Pac-Man title. There was a tournament in Santa Monica on the 25th of April in 82, and he won the tournament with a score of 1.2 million. It says he's a national Pac-Man champion, so I don't know if this is like, you know, pre-Billy Mitchell and Twin Galaxies and all that stuff. He says he's getting tired of arcade games, though, and looking for a personal computer, and says due to the success that he's had playing Atari's arcade games, he's considering the purchase of an Atari 800. So, go Matthew. Next is an article on mazes in 3D, and so there's some basic listings in AppleSoft Basic about how to plot coordinates and stuff if you're going to draw, like, a first-person maze. Then we get to the Atari Sound column by Bill Williams. This is part two. It says random composition and musical indirection. And he goes over some music theory, talking about like how Atari produces sound. Middle C is the value 121 when you do a sound command. But then talks about how composition sort of works. And he says, music distinguishes itself from random noise by having a format, something for the mind to catch and interpret. Music written with a format becomes a mix of expectation and surprise. And the craft of the composer lies in the creative way these two elements are combined. And I thought that was sort of a, a great description of music. The expectation and surprise. I always felt that, you know, songs that I really like, you, know, you kind of think you know where they're going and then they have some little twist and it just makes you like it all that much more. And so he goes on to talk more about sort of computer-generated music and how, like, a random composition is not going to make sense unless there's some sort of structure to it. And he has a basic program that it turns out there somebody's already typed all these in, and so I'll include a link in the show notes to a website that has all of his articles. And so it goes, there's like eight parts, so it's going to go for, you know, many more uh, issues of this magazine. And so rather than typing this program in, which I wouldn't have done, I copied it and ran it. What the program does is it takes a list of eight notes and then creates some filler notes in between those notes. So like the notes you give it are kind of like key points that it's going to hit and it's going to blend some music in between those. And he describes a little bit of the logic of how this is done. And in post-production, I will add some, hopefully, if I remember, we'll add the sound of what it sounds like just as the default program. And then again, I went through and I changed some of the data statements. And yeah, as I mentioned, this is part two of eight, so we'll be talking about these articles for yeah, most of the remaining run of Softline. Next is the article on mystery games, and it talks a little bit about some stuff like, you know, Deadline, and then some of the other games that it compares to as, like, you know, lesser games, saying that Deadline is kind of the, the pinnacle at the moment. It mentions some Scott Adams games, mentions a game, called, a game called Alibi. For kids, it mentions games like Snooper Troops and Granite Point Ghost, which I haven't heard of. I remember vaguely having a game called Murder on the Zendernuff, and I don't remember really playing it, but it was kind of, if I remember it right, it was a graphical sort of mystery game, and I'll have to get that out again and check it out. Getting into a couple of game reviews, there's a game called Serpentine for the Apple II, then there's Canyon Climber for the Atari 800. It's kind of a famous platformer, there's like three different levels, and I found it very difficult. It was one of the first games I ever had, I got it on cassette. A lot of people seem to like it, it's not my favorite game, I think it's a little bit too tedious, but it's definitely a famous game. There's a review of Gamma Software's Hockey. It requires two players, or it says two, three, or four players, according to the manual. And the reviewer is very positive about that. He says sometimes it's it's hard to pick out which person you're actually controlling, because there's four controllable players on screen. It says three forwards and, a, and the goalie. And the computer apparently kind of picks which one you control, and it says sometimes that's hard to distinguish. But it's a single screen, no scrolling, and the players are, look kind of big. So I'm, I haven't played it before. I'm not sure what it's like. 
And then finally, there's a review for a game called Hazard Run, which the reviewer didn't really like at all. It said the controls were poor and how the car was turning. It's sort of like a, it's a car racing game. It's based on this unfortunate TV show here in the United States called Dukes of Hazard, which at its core featured a car with a, a large Confederate flag on its roof. And the show ran for like seven seasons. It was on a long time. It was very popular. Ostensibly a comedy about, you know, sort of small town Southern living. The tagline was, they're just good old boys, never meaning no harm. And it was intended to be this sort of light comedy about these two guys driving their car at high speed, doing these, you know, family-friendly shenanigans while thumbing their noses at the local corrupt law enforcement. But the entire main cast was white. There was a recurring black character, the sheriff of the neighboring county, but he only appears in 12 episodes, according to IMDb, out of almost 150 episodes total. There are a few more black characters that occur in, uh, you know, a handful of episodes, but that's it. And to give you an idea of sort of the unstated privilege of the show, you know, imagine the two leads were black men doing the same stuff, you know, driving this orange hot rod, breaking traffic laws of this small southern town, and, you know, they'd be in jail before the first commercial break. Series over. And for those of you outside the U.S., or if you didn't happen to see Dukes of Hazard when it was on TV back in the 70s and 80s, the Confederate flag we're talking about here, it's a red flag with a blue a sort of diagonal X and then stars within the blue portion to represent all the states that seceded from the Union to form the Confederacy. This flag was not the flag of the Confederacy itself. It was more a battle flag. The Confederacy did have its own sort of like, you know, national flag, but that flag is virtually unknown today. But use of the Confederate flag didn't really start until after World War II, when it started to be used by segregationist candidates and the Ku Klux Klan. This was an obvious appeal to white Southerners, who, starting in the early 1900s, started building up a mythology called the Lost Cause, where the desire was to reframe the Civil War in not in terms of slavery, but in terms of states' rights. But this is a completely disingenuous argument, because not only did several of the states explicitly mention in their secession documents that they were seceding because of slavery, There are innumerable references to politicians of the day stating that slavery was the reason to break up the country. Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, has his famous cornerstone speech where he minces no words and says the Confederate government is based on white supremacy. So it is impossible to disentangle the Confederate flag from white supremacy and slavery. Civil rights organizations have long called the flag a symbol of hatred and have called for its removal on public property. And finally, there seems to be some long overdue movement in that direction by some of the southern states. This has no effect on the ability of private citizens to display the Confederate flag or whatever Confederate icons they choose, as long as it's on private property. When Confederate symbols are displayed on public property, government property, that implies government support for the ideas behind those icons. And that's why it's important for state-owned monuments to Confederate soldiers come down why the Confederate flag should not be displayed on state property, why the 10 American military bases named after Confederate generals should be renamed. Because these icons, these flags, these names are directly and unambiguously tied to white supremacy and slavery. And while I'm supportive of people and their First Amendment rights, I'm hoping that the usage of the Confederate flag will continue to decrease as more and more people realize that it's not a symbol of Southern pride, but rather a relic of oppression. Anywho, how about those Knicks? There's a column, Adventures in Adventuring, by Ken Rose, and it's more about programming an adventure game in BASIC. He says, you probably notice as these programs become more sophisticated, they become longer. Most of the game is taken up not by the logic of the program, but by descriptive words needed to flesh out the story. And notes that in most conver- commercial games, it's mostly the like the dictionaries and, and descriptions that take up most of the space, not the program itself. 
There's a column on Apple II Graphics by Ken Williams. And now he starts to get into the bit positions and sort of the binary values of the bytes and how they are backwards on the screen. So he has a few tables in there and does most of the stuff in basic. And so he's poking data and, and um, using that as examples. And then we're at the end of the magazine and we have the high score table. It's now two full pages. Caverns of Mars looks like it's 786,000 by Toxetso of Boston. Jawbreaker on the Atari is 176,000 by Shane Rollin of Pennsylvania. K-Razy Shootout, 97,000. Same guy, Shane Rollin, Monroeville, Pennsylvania. Let's look at Sabotage. Where's Sabotage? 86,000 by Steve Clotier of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. The Star Raiders high score is only Lieutenant Class 1? Wow. Ron Felder, Sunnyvale. Pac-Man on the Atari, 900. 134,000. Shane Rollin, Monroeville, Pennsylvania. Boy, he's a busy guy. Yeah, looking over. Ah, he's probably got 5% of these 200 scores. Moving on to soft side. This is issue number 33. $3 on the cover price. 100 pages in the issue. The fourth anniversary issue, it says. The theme of the issue apparently is going to be computer graphics because it has three little pictures, like portraits almost, sort of not really centered, kind of skewed. One's of Charlie Chaplin and two are of probably portraits of people that I should recognize, but I'm not an artist, so they're probably famous, like, styles, but yeah, I am not an artist person. So I don't know, but since they're portraits, I do know they aren't Jackson Pollock paintings. It also mentions Shape Wizard and Spiral Graphics on the cover, and we'll find out what those are. Table of Contents lists the cover feature, and then several other features that aren't machine-specific, apparently. And then they do have their Apple side, TRS-80 side, and Atari side segments. The Atari side segment is actually the largest. It has the most entries anyway. And each one of the sides has a program that's available only on disk. And it turns out that Spiral Graphics is actually an Atari program. We'll skip over some stuff. The first interesting article is Home Movies by Fred Dignazio and Alan Wold. It talks about sort of this imagined scenario of how you might create movies in the future. And as you might expect, they got the details a little bit wrong. They thought you might go into some automated studio and sort of film a bunch of stuff and, you know, record and edit and stuff all in several days essentially using sort of AI stuff to make all your edits and, and scene changes and talks about this automated process where you don't really make the decisions to add additional stuff in the scenes. It sort of does things for you. So while the capability for home movies has radically increased in the, you know, in, in their future and our present, nothing like this automated stuff exists. The next article is Electronic Renaissance, the Future Impact of Computers on Art and Culture. And this is the cover feature with those portraits. The article is by Saul Bernstein. It also includes a little blurb that he is the one who created the works that were on the front cover. It doesn't say who the subjects were, but the little portraits were painted on an Apple III. It says he used a graphics tablet, but not what kind of software he used. As for the article itself, I'm kind of having a hard time summarizing it. It's kind of wanders a bit, and the subtitle is The Future Impact of Computers on Art and Culture. Yeah, at the end, he says, I think we'll see a revival of the fine arts in the American family in a high technology era that will make us the envy of the world. And I don't know if that's true or not. Then we get into the Apple side. We got a high-res character generator, topic after my own heart. I've written a couple, and we'll skip the rest of the Apple side, and then skip the TRS-80 side. And we get to the lovely Atari side. First thing is a review of uh, something called Color Print. Reviews by Rick Nichols. Essentially what this is is some software along with some colored carbon paper that allows you to print out color images. The limiting factor is there's only several sheets of each of the colors and you've got to feed it back through the printer every time you want to use a different color. And so the sort of long-term usability of this is pretty limited. It does show a sample of the color output and, you know, a color screen is then stretched across a full page. So it's very pixelated. The reviewer seemed impressed with it overall, but says that there, you know, the big criticism was the fact that there were not many color sheets included. And not only that, but they didn't really have an order form to get more. So yeah, you might be out of luck if you buy this program. 
apparently is distributed by Datasoft and said that perhaps contacting Datasoft will be the only way to go. Next, we have a disk-only program called Paranoia. There's no screenshot, and it, it says you're kind of like being chased by robots and stuff. And I think I found this on HomeSoft, but it's an XEX, and it says that BASIC is required in the article. If it's the one I found on HomeSoft, it's a Berserk clone. But again, yeah, I don't know if it was compiled from the BASIC. Um, I actually played it. It's pretty slow, and whenever you shoot one of the enemies, everything stops, and the enemy sort of has a disappearing animation. And then as a new enemy appears, it also stops everything. But as a sort of, you know, quote-unquote type-in game, it's it's not bad. There's a review of Draw Pick. Uh, David Plotkin's doing the reviewing. The software is from Artworks by Dennis Zander, and it's kind of what it says on the tin. It's a drawing program, sort of for creating artistic sort of images. It says it can be used to create partial screen or full screen images in graphics modes three through seven. It seems like there might be animation, and then there's some machine language subroutines that you can use in your basic programs. I haven't seen this one, but David Plotkin highly recommends it. Next, we get to an actual type-in program. This is Spiral Graphics. So the program is by Tom G's, and the article itself is by Sheldon Lehman, which is sort of the first I remember seeing where a program and the sort of text accompanying it were written by different people. But in nice soft side style, the, it's a basic program, and it's the listing is sort of broken into chunks in between with comments about what the routines do. And it's kind of also kind of what it says on the tin. It makes sort of like spiral graphics, like kind of like the spiral graph thing. I don't know if you had those as a kid. Those little sort of gear-shaped things that you'd have like inner gears and outer gears, and you put your pen in and trace a whole bunch of like cool repeating patterns. And it kind of seems what that's all about. There's another type-in program called Flicker. It's probably maybe designed to be pronounced Flicker, but it's F-L-I-K-E-R, so I looked at it and said Flicker. But what it is is basically a machine language subroutine that flips between pages, like every 60th of a second, it'll flip the other page. And so it's designed to sort of blend colors, and it, it makes, it says, to get 16 simultaneous colors in any graphics mode. This is pretty early on. Obviously, I never saw it because I never saw soft side at all. But the idea to get more colors by page flipping like this is something that never occurred to me when I was, you know, developing stuff back then. And it's reminiscent to me of the Super IRG, like, character mode that I first ran across doing a review of Bill Kendrick's Gem Drop. But again, in nice soft side style, they have sort of interspersed codes and comment blocks as the article goes through. And it's got a demo program in BASIC also to show you how it works. See, so yeah, I really like the style of how they do their listings. Kind of reminiscent, I suppose, of Donald Knuth's, uh, what was it, literate programming style, which I thought was great in theory, but in practice, I could never sort of do that because my, I don't develop my programs sort of in one linear chunk, which is probably bad. I mean, you probably should like write everything out and then kind of fill the program in to do what you say you're going to do. But yeah, I'm bad at commenting. You know, any code that I wrote more than a few weeks ago might have as well been written by somebody else because it's all foreign. I have no idea what I was doing. Next is the review of a program called Paint. Reviews by J. Harmon Gran. So it says paint is by Superboots, which is somehow part of the Capitol Children's Museum in, in Washington, D.C. It also says Reston Publishing Company. And it seems like this program is was developed in part with the, a donation that Atari made to the Capitol Children's Museum. So Atari donated 30 computers, and then this program was kind of developed for sort of a hands-on experience within the museum, it seems. And the review says one of its strengths is like color mixing, like essentially creating patterns that you then fill shapes with. Seems like it's more art for art's sake. It doesn't mention anything about incorporating it into or having utilities to incorporate it in, to incorporate stuff into uh, separate programs. And there's a review of 3D Super Graphics, a review by S. Bearfield. Program is by P. Ludus, United Software of America. It says the full title is 3D Super Graphics and Color Game Development System. Interestingly, it looks like a basic package because it says it allows you to create 3D shapes and then manipulate them using the basic print number commands. 
And that's really it for the Atari side. There's a new product section that mentions a couple things. Um, one is the Spinnaker software has a, looks like a couple of kids programs, FaceMaker and Story Machine. I sort of vaguely remember FaceMaker. I think it was targeted at kids younger than I was, but for some reason that rings a bell somewhere. And now we hear from Kay Savitz with the APX catalog. Hi, I'm Kay Savitz, and I will be your tour guide through the Atari Program Exchange catalog for fall 1982. This catalog is the sixth of 11 APX catalogs, so we're slightly halfway, just about through the middle of the run. The cover features uh, the usual colorful comic style featuring uh, two schools and a home. In the in the foreground is a little red schoolhouse, uh, PS138, in which you can see a computer lab and little children holding boxes of Atari Program Exchange software talking to the teacher who also has a, a box of software. Uh, it is fall, clearly. There's leaves all over the ground and colorful leaves still in the trees. Also in the, in the foreground is a, is a home. You can see through the open window there is a smiling man using his Atari 800 computer. Kind of off in the distance, you can see a state university with the bell tower and the old university-looking building. And walking into the university are many people. I'm going to say 20 or more people. And most of them are carrying Atari 800 computers under their arms, and some of them have APX software uh, in their other hand. So uh, all these people, one of them is carrying their, their Atari 800 computer and their APX software in a little red wagon that they're taking to school. Clearly, these people don't understand that the Atari 800 is not technically a portable computer. Although I guess if you carry it under your arm, it could be. So they're all walking into their respective schools with their Atari 800s in hand. I was slightly surprised that none of these people have Atari 1200XLs, which came out uh, around the end of 1982, but I guess it didn't really hit dealer shelves until the, uh, the beginning of 1983. So the 800 still is making a prominent appearance on this colorful fall-themed cover. Inside, it says we have a lot to be excited about this quarter. All APX programs in this issue of this catalog are available now, so go ahead and order these APX programs you wanted but couldn't get your hands on. More good news is the quality of new programs we've introduced in this issue. Our 18 new programs amply demonstrate how successful our contributors have become at creating programs you'll enjoy using. One reason our programs improve with each issue is that we have many repeat authors whose contributions reflect the experience gained from past efforts. This uh, editorial article goes on to say, uh, more good news, another APX product is now available as a main Atari product. My First Alphabet, the first annual 25,000 grand prize winning program in our quarterly APX contest, joins Caverns of Mars as an APX program that has moved into the main Atari product line. So yeah, uh, Fernando Herrera's My First Alphabet has left the slums of APX and become a real Atari product. So good for Fernando. As Atari programs, they'll receive extensive marketing support, more elaborate graphics, and a custom design box. More APX programs are being polished for possible future introduction into the Atari line, and will proudly announce their promotions as they occur. I'm not really sure how many other programs are going to jump to real Atari products, but I guess we'll see. It also says that APX programs are available through Atari home computer retailers, which means you can get them more quickly than ordering by mail by visiting your local Atari home computer retailer. If you're an Atari home computer retailer who hasn't yet ordered APX software, contact your Atari representative. Okay, so 18 new programs. Let's find out what they are. There's nothing new in the personal finance and record keeping category, but in the business and professional applications category, uh, the first new program is Stock Management by Greg Thrush and Message Display Program by Dennis Harkins. This handy program creates up to 50 pages of automatically or manually cycled messages you can display on your computer screen over a closed-circuit television system. 
Containing many of the features of a commercial video message generator, the program is easy and fun to use. Those two programs were the first and second prize winners for uh, this quarter's contest. Also in this category is Text Analyst by Ingrid Langevins, someone who I have not been able to interview. Text Analyst uses the Dale Shawl method to analyze a 100-word sample or the entire contents of any text file created with the Atari word processor or with TextWizard. It computes the grade level and relevant statistics, such as average sentence and word length, and displays and prints the results in less than two minutes for a 100-word sample. That made me laugh, I guess, because now there's a, probably a dozen websites where you can do the same thing paste in a chunk and it'll it'll tell you uh, what what reading level your text is and it takes what a fraction of a second you can use the printed list of words that don't match the dale list as a check for spelling errors in your text and both the statistics and the list of non-dale words can help you analyze your writing style that one was the third place winner nothing new in the personal interest and development category but in the education category new is flags of europe by gary a Dacus. Flags of Europe is a colorful program that can help youngsters and adults alike quickly become experts at recognizing European flags. Also new in that category and winning first prize for this category is Counter by Al Casper. Young children will happily learn to count to 15 with this friendly introduction to numbers. Bright colors and happy sounds capture youngsters' attention and add to the fun of counting exercises in English, French, German, or Spanish. Also new in the education category is Easy Grader by Dan Hale of AD Enterprises. It's a tool for teachers. Teachers will love keeping classroom records with Easy Grader. You can store student grades, compute averages, assign final grades, produce statistics, and print reports with this comprehensive package. Also in the education category is Calculus Demon by The Soft Warehouse. The third program in the series that includes AlgaCalc and PolyCalc provides a comprehensive tool for automatically deriving symbolic partial derivatives and indefinite integrals of expressions. I know nothing about what those words mean. Individually, the programs offer a quick way to perform various kinds of operations in symbolic algebra and calculus. Collectively, they constitute a complete computational package. Besides AlgaCalc, Calculus Demon, and PolyCalc, there was one other uh, program in the series that did not make it uh, to the Atari. It was called PicoMath. The manual is online. It was available for the Apple II and, I believe, other platforms, but uh, never made it to Atari. Also in the education category is uh, Spelling Genie by Dale Disharoon. Spelling Genie has so much magic and whimsy that children will want to play its four spelling games time and time again, and teachers and parents will welcome the program's versatility. Along with nine predefined spelling lists, Spelling Genie accommodates any spelling list children need to practice. In fact, kids lucky enough to have Spelling Genie will probably clamor for more words to master. And also, Word Search Generator by Max Mulliner. Words can be hidden horizontally, vertically, or diagonally, and backwards and forwards within the grid. You use your joystick to locate the first and last letters of a word before time runs out. Word Search Generator won third prize in that category. Also in the education category, and now I'm beginning to understand why education seemed to be the feature of the front cover of this catalog, is Math UFO by Gregor Novak. A mysteriously flashing spaceship floats into the top of the screen. Is it a Martian? No. It's Math UFO flashing you number drills. Math UFO is a very competitive one- or two-player educational game that turns math drills into a fast-moving arcade-style challenge. So warm up your joystick wrist and get ready for a space chase. Math UFO won the second prize in that category. That's it for the education category. Moving on to the entertainment category. Third prize in the entertainment category is Snark Hunt 
by Jeff Joe Hannigan. Your mission, find the snarks hidden inside a mysterious snark box. Your clues, vorpal beams you fire into the box, which are affected by the snarks inside. Only your logic will help you find the errant snarks. You search for snarks by shooting vorpal beams into a grid. The path of the vorpal beam gives you clues to the snarks' whereabouts. As a vorpal beam moves through the box, it either reflects off a nearby snark in a known pattern, hits the snark directly and is absorbed by it, or exits from the box directly opposite the entry point. I think this plays exactly like the game Black Box, which I first uh, encountered in David All's book More Basic Computer Games. Second prize in the entertainment category is Mancala by Elizabeth Chase McRae, which is a computer version of the very old game Mancala. And first prize in this category is Cribbage by Jose R. Suarez. If you're not a Cribbage player already, the program will turn you into one. And if you are one already, Cribbage offers you an opponent who's smarter than you think and always ready to play. Cribbage is an original computer graphics interpretation of the well-known card game of skill and chance. It's a race to the finish line, 121 points between you and the computer. Cribbage has four levels of difficulty. The computer will always play its best, but the difficulty level determines the amount of scoring help you get. At the beginner level, the program displays each scoring set of cards. At the novice level, the computer counts all your points for you. At the intermediate level, you must count your own points, but you have an unlimited number of tries to arrive at the correct score. At the card shark level, you must count your points very carefully since the computer will steal any points you miss. That is an interesting take on the game, I think, for when your computer player doesn't have the ability to play at different skill levels. Moving on to the system software category is MapMaker by Stephen W. Hall which is a neat little program for making maps uh, in the style of Eastern Front. This easy-to-use utility can help you create multi-screen displays that capitalize on the Atari computer's outstanding multicolor, fine-scrolled, redefined character sets. The large display that can fit on a small amount of memory is truly impressive. On systems with at least 40K of memory, MapMaker makes up to 8K available for displays, comprising as many as 34 screens. It says, Chris Crawford is a user of MapMaker. The program is easy to use, but be prepared to spend several sessions building your map. MapMaker uses page 6 of memory and can't be used with another program occupying this area. MapMaker won second place in that category. In first place was Mantis Boot by John Palovich. So this is a program that allows assembly language programmers that have disk-based Atari systems to broaden their potential market by creating programs for users with cassette-only systems. Until Mantis Boot came along, developing such programs usually meant having to remove memory modules, unplug the disk drive, and make temporary cassette copies. No more. With Mantis Boot, you can assemble and debug machine language tape programs on your disk-based system with all the memory your system normally contains. You use the Atari 410 program recorder only after you've completely debugged the program. Also new in the system software category is Dunyan's Debugging Tool. DDT by Jim Dunyon, which is a powerful program for debugging assembly language programs. Also new in this category and earning the third place prize is Funforth by Joel Gluck. Funforth is a valuable set of programming tools to use with another APX program, Extended Figforth. It's especially useful for writing games. The 41 screens of fourth commands included in Funforth facilitate using advanced sound generation, simple turtle graphics, the joystick and paddle controllers, and the yellow console keys and keyboard in fourth programs. Also included in this package are various words for timekeeping, random number generation, creation of of arrays and recursion. And then there's Fourth Turtle Graphics Plus by William D. Volk. If you're a user of our extended FigForth, you'll want to investigate Fourth Turtle Graphics Plus. The package contains a group of fourth functions that adds the standard turtle graphics of Atari Pilot to extended FigForth. 
You can design graphic programs displayable in any graphics mode and on any portion of the screen without modifying your program. The package also includes a normalized coordinate system, the ability to draw windows with clipped lines on any part of the screen display, the trigonomic function sine, cosine, and tangent, and the 12 graphics modes available with the new GTIA chip for use in fourth programs. In the back of the book, you've got the publication section, uh, which is basically you can get Dayray Atari and APX product catalogs, the one-page hardware category where you can buy uh, 13 and I.O. sockets and D.I.N. connectors and S.I.O. plugs and, and a couple of other, th- other things like that. That's fun. And finally, the back cover, which is a continuation, actually, of the front cover picture. Uh, if you spread it out, it makes a larger picture. So this would be the, the left side of the image, which shows uh, more children running to school, holding their boxes of APX programs and a view into another house where a woman is typing on her computer. That's it for the fall 1982 APX catalog. Remember, there's a $10 minimum per order, plus a $2.50 shipping and handling charge. You can place your order by mail or phone. Payment is accepted by check, money order, visa, or MasterCard. No COD or purchase orders. If your order arrives damaged, please call our toll-free numbers within seven days after receiving your order. Have your packing slip at hand and ask for a return authorization number. Do not return program to APX without this number. I never had any APX catalogs back in my original ownership period. I have some now thanks to the generosity of Kay and Bill Kendrick. But as I flip through one now and I see, you know, sort of the new software being called out, I wonder, is anything or has anything ever been removed from the APX catalog? I mean, I know stuff like Caverns of Mars went to the, you know, the full product lineup, you know, Typo Attack went to the full Atari product lineup. I wonder if anything was ever removed for some other reason, you know, if it wasn't selling well enough or there was some reason to pull it from the store. You know, did one piece of software incite an insurrection? So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if any software was ever removed from the APX catalog. Let's take a look at Deluxe Invaders. This is a game for one or two players where you'll alternate and you'll use a single joystick controller. Unfortunately, there's no two-player simultaneous mode. That would be cool. It was written by Joe Hellison, published by Rockland Corp. in 1981. It's available as an 8K cartridge or as a disc, and I'll include a link to the Atari Mania page. Joe Hellison was interviewed by Kay in Antic episode 352, so I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. This is a really excellent clone of Space Invaders. If you're looking for the arcade experience of Space Invaders, like, this is it. I have not found a better Space Invaders game on a home computer. I mean, not that I'm a Space Invaders expert or anything, but I've played a few, you know, Space Invaders is one of the common games that people would develop and clone. I actually probably still like the 2600 version of Space Invaders a little bit better because that's what I played, you know, as a kid and I never played this. I never saw this growing up even. The 2600 version of Space Invaders is, yeah, an amazing game, but it is not an exact clone of the arcade game. This one feels like the arcade game. At least in game mode one, there are nine game modes that you can choose from and game one is the classic Space Invaders. Modes two through nine add a little twist that I'll discuss in a little bit. If you haven't seen Space Invaders before, what are you doing listening to this podcast? But I will try to describe it anyway. So there are six rows of aliens. Each row has eight aliens across, so there's 48 total. And they march sort of left to right on the screen as they get to one end. They'll go down a little bit closer to your base on the bottom, and then they'll start marching the other direction. You control a base that fires lasers. You slide left and right on the bottom of the playfield, or near the bottom of the playfield, I guess. There's a score. Your score is on the bottom. Your base is white in color, and you shoot white lasers. The enemies are multicolored. Each layer is a different color, and they also shoot lasers down at you. Your lasers are like a thin vertical rectangle that goes up, and their lasers are these little zigzags, two pixels wide, that go down at about half the speed that yours travel up. 
The base shields are here. There's four of them kind of spaced across the screen. They're about as wide as two aliens, I guess. And the width of each shield is about the same as the gap between shields. You can shoot to the left of the far left shield and to the right of the far right shield. There's a little bit of space where you can shoot. You can also shoot through the shields by kind of eating away with your laser. And as it, after three or four shots, you'll be able to fire through it. There is the occasional appearance of a UFO that flies at the very top of the screen, and sometimes it will drop an additional alien that will kind of fill in a column that was been deleted on the left or right side. So yeah, the aliens only rebound off one of the walls when like a column of aliens actually gets there. So if you can if you can remove a couple columns, it takes them longer before the aliens will move down to the next row. And this is of course one of the optimal strategies for space invaders is to remove columns at a time. As the rows of aliens move down, they will start to remove layers of your shields, and your shields are about three aliens tall, so it'll remove the first, the top third first, and the middle third, and the bottom third. There is a gap out of the bottom third of the shields, it's like a little kind of half-circle-shaped chunk taken out of the bottom of the shield. So if the aliens remove the top two layers of your shields, the bottom the third does not allow much protection. You can also shoot the alien lasers as they're on their way down, but I generally did that only accidentally, I wasn't attempting to do that very often. You get three bases, and after that, if you lose those three or the aliens march their way all the way to the bottom, your game is over. This should not seem new to you if you're listening to this podcast, because I'm guessing you've seen this game before. Maybe not Deluxe Invaders particularly, but Space Invaders. The twist is, on game modes 2 through 9, some of the aliens in the middle two rows take multiple shots. So the first shot splits the alien into two little mini-aliens, and then each one of those has to be shot separately. And the higher the game mode, the more of those little splittable aliens occur. Before I look at some of the technical details of the game, I just want to say that this is a really smoothly playing game. It's extremely responsive. It feels like the speeds are just right for your base versus the aliens. It is a really excellent port of Space Invaders, and I suggest you try it if you hadn't before. I had not, I'd not seen this back in the day, but I highly recommend it. It is really good. Getting into some of the technical aspects of the game, I first kind of approached it with my Apple II hat on and say, okay, what, how would you do this on the Apple II? And there's a lot of moving stuff, you know, 48 critters, plus it looks like there can be like three shots on the screen at one time from the aliens and then one of your shots, plus the UFO then on the top of the screen. So that's a lot of moving stuff. And if this were drawn on a high-res screen, you know, without any sprites, obviously there's too many sprites for the player missiles to work. Just drawing on the high-res screen, you'd have to use pre-shifted images in order to have any chance of moving that much stuff at once, you know, within a sixtieth of a second. So this would be a hard game, and maybe impossible, to do in a sixtieth of a second on an Apple II or using, like, graphics mode 7+, Plus, which is what this sort of appears to be drawn in, you know, antic mode E. But this being an Atari, there's a better way to do it. And so looking at the display list, this is actually using horizontal scrolling of graphics mode 6. So mode 6 is the 20 by 24 mode. It's basic graphics mode 1. Each character is 8 scan lines tall and 8 pixels wide, where each pixel is a, you know, graphics 7 plus pixel. So one color clock or two graphics 8 pixels. Now the aliens themselves are wider than 8 pixels. They're actually 12. So two characters are used for each invader. The way he set up the display list is there's a mode 6 line that holds one row of enemies. And then there's a mode 6 line that has nothing in it. And then there's another mode 6 line of aliens, and another mode 6 line of nothing. So it alternates a line of aliens and a blank line for then the six rows of aliens. At the start of the game, there are three blank mode 6 lines at the top of the screen, and then the the first row of aliens. And because there's six rows of aliens, there's five blank rows between them. That's 11 rows. And then there's five blank rows before the first row of the shields. And then there's three lines of mode 6 that represent the shields, and those don't have scrolling turned on. Then there's three more blank lines of mode 6, and then the area where your base scrolls on. 
the UFO that sometimes appears on the top of the screen is a player. It's not part of the scrolling uh, rows of enemies. So as the aliens reach one side of the screen, they do that by purely horizontal scrolling, the combination of fine scrolling plus coarse scrolling that you can read all about in my tutorial on scrolling at playermissile.com slash scrolling underscore tutorial. Once the scrolling reaches its limit, it does a coarse scroll to have the aliens move down. There's no fine vertical scrolling for the aliens moving. It's just a purely a change of the display list to point the address of the screen memory to a new line. This whole process is super computationally cheap. All he's changing is the address of a display list uh, load memory scan pointer. So essentially, every time he moves the aliens down, he's changing 16 memory addresses. The address of the top row of aliens is moved to the next line in the display list, and so on. And then the blank lines in the display list all point to the same memory address, so he can just copy each one of those to the old addresses of all the old rows of each line of aliens. A nice byproduct of this is it automatically takes care of wiping out the shields as the aliens march down the screen. So when the bottom row of aliens is on the row right above the shields, it operates as normal. And when it gets scrolled down to the next line, the display list is changed to replace that one display list, which was a static, non-scrolling mode 6 line, to be a scrolling mode 6 line of that bottom row of alien. And this means he gets the disappearing shield for free. Because all the missiles that the alien shoot and you shoot are players, they don't, they aren't affected by the scrolling left or right. They track exactly vertically, you know, on the same column on which they were shot. While the explosions of the aliens that you destroy are scrolled, and so they move with the rest of the aliens as if it was like, you know, a cloud of exploding debris that kind of had some momentum. The explosions are always the same color as the aliens in that particular row. And because of the use of the display list interrupts, you know, each row is a different color. And so it makes it a, a very colorful game. It looks like the display list interrupt is set on the scrolling line that includes the aliens, not on the blank line. Because there's occasions where the very first scan line of that line will be the color of the previous row. And I talk about why that happens in my display list interrupt tutorial, which you can see at playermissile.com slash DLI underscore tutorial. All in all, the hardware capabilities of the Atari really make this game much easier to write than it would be on other platforms. This Space Invaders-style game has a lot of things that really lend itself well to the Atari. You know, stuff being separated by vertical bands so you can change the colors, redefinable character sets that make the appearance of multiple sprites very easy to do. And in fact, he could have done it even easier. He could have made two character sets and swapped them to make sort of the marching aliens. You know, there, there's two different states of each alien. There's one that's kind of like a sort of a closed stance and one on an open stance where it either moves its like claws or wings or whatever they are in or out. And the way he did that was actually go through and change each character at every vertical blank to be a different character so that they would alternate these um, these patterns. Had he used two character sets, he could have just flipped the pointer to the character set at every vertical blank, and then he would have been able to leave the memory alone. But it's possible that would have run into like 16K memory limits, because I know this was designed to run on a 16K Atari. So if you haven't checked out this game before, I highly recommend it. It's a very good quality Space Invaders port. Best one I've seen if you're looking to recreate the arcade experience. And I'll do a little feedback here before I sign off. Last episode, I mentioned a really technically interesting home console called the Bally Astrocade, where the professional arcade had many names, and friend of the show Adam Triunfo pointed me to the source code for that artillery game that I talked about, as well as a YouTube demo of that game being played. And then turns out that he has rescued a whole bunch of data and manuals and stuff about the Astrocade itself. And I'll include a link in the show notes to his amazing website where he details a lot of this stuff. So he has archived and saved a whole bunch of stuff that otherwise would have been lost. 
And on top of that, he has a podcast about the system. So if you're interested in the Bally Astrocade, check out BallyAlley.com for all the materials that he's rescued and scanned and archived. And then check out his podcast, the Bally Alley Astrocast, for interviews, game reviews, technical discussions, all sorts of stuff. I'm enjoying listening to it, and I have no clue about the system itself, other than its interesting technical details. So I imagine if you grew up with this, this would just be an amazing sort of walk down memory lane. It's definitely worth a listen. And also last episode, I talked about a game, Rearguard, that I didn't like very much. And in a total coincidence, I found a sort of Twitter review of the game by my new favorite Twitter account. It's called The Retro Analyst, who is posting just an insane number of, like, screenshots of games. And on the 3rd of November, which is sort of well after the time I started recording, but well before I released, so, I don't know, on the same wavelength there somehow, had this little review of, you know, sort of a little micro-review of uh, the Atari version of Rearguard. I think they were more kind to it than I was, you know, said the game sold well, but the reviews were decidedly mixed. And as a spoiler to the next issue of Softline, the readers there voted the dog of the year by a wide margin, it said. So this is a fun Twitter account to follow. There's also a website that goes on in more detail about more games, even like reviews, full reviews of games. So I'll include a link in the show notes to that website as well. So that's going to be it for this episode. So if you got any feedback for me, you can email me at feedback at playermissile.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Atari8BitGames, or you can just shout real loud, sometimes that works. Thanks again to Steph Animal for allowing me to use one of her songs as the theme to the podcast. It's Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear, and I'll include a link in the show notes to all her stuff. So until next time, hope you're staying healthy, wearing those masks, or at least in the United States, because I see you, New Zealand, with your competent leadership during this pandemic, now free to enjoy your barbecues and brew pubs. Hopefully we have science back in the driver's seat here in America, and we'll be joining you soon. But until then, there's one flag we can all agree to fly, and that's the Atari flag. 